This episode is brought to you by HP Instant Ink. No one is reading your mind, but HP Instant Ink knows when your printer is running low and sends new cartridges before you run out. So you never have to think about ink. For details, visit hp.com slash instant ink Spotify. Conditions apply. and welcome to Chapter Tactics, your 40k podcast which focuses on playing warmer 40k competitively at all levels of the game. I'm your host, Petey Pob, and today with me, I brought our very own Chapter Tactics 40k champs LVO specialists, Jeff Robinson. Hello. And Val Heffelfinger. How's it going, guys? We have a jam-packed episode for you guys today. We're going to be talking about top 8 coverage at the Las Vegas Open. We're going to cover the issue of slow playing. And we're also going to ask Val and Jeff how they did at the Las Vegas Open. Um, So it should be a lot of fun. We're also going to switch up how the episode is going to go. We're going to talk about tournament coverage at the end of the episode. We've got a lot of juicy statistics, both from CanCon and the Las Vegas Open, to talk about, as well as lists and a lot of other cool things. So we're going to power through that in the second half of the episode. But before we begin, go on to the beginning of the episode, uh, I just want to uh, give you guys a, a quick PSA. We are ambassadors to the hobby. We are always ambassadors to the hobby. And if you really care about the future of 40K, you should watch how you conduct yourself. Uh, not just at tournaments as a player, but also online when you're interacting with people on social media, Twitch, Facebook, Twitter. You, you know, For every person who says, this is why I don't attend 40K tournaments when they watch like a Twitch live stream, uh, I guarantee you there's another person who says, you sees how we treat each other online and thinks, you know, that community isn't for me. Uh, more importantly, that community isn't right for my children you, when they try to find out what games to teach their children how to play. Uh, and that goes for me too. I, I argue a lot online, uh, and I think I need to do a better job of taking a step back and seeing things from other people's perspectives instead of just getting caught up in my own opinion. Um, so... Just keep that in mind, guys. We are a fraternity of 40K players, and I know me, for for one thing, if I were sitting at a party alone drinking and I saw a dude wearing a Wordbearer shirt go on as an Ultramarines player, that guy's my bro. I'm going to go talk to that guy. He could have been trashing Chapter Tactics five minutes ago on his phone, but as far as I'm concerned, he he's my partner. He's, he's the guy I'm going to be talking to this whole night because he knows 40K, and... We are a small community, and we need to stick together. That, that's that's pretty much it. Okay. Going on to the Las Vegas Open, and speaking of the 40K community, it was a large event. 470-plus players. The, someone managed to find a key to the attic and take a wide shot of all of the players playing in the room, and it was impressive. It, it was insane watching everyone play at the same time. Um, the, the room is huge. Everyone's just little specks. It, it, it's crazy that the we managed to put that many people in a room and play 40k, and not just that many people, but people of high calibers. 
right? We had like we had Jeff in Control Robinson there, and we had Mr. Val Heffelfinger all the way from Canada, right? On top of people like Paul Murphy, Kenny Boucher, uh, everyone in the top 100 in ITC seemed like. Uh, Mini Wargaming was there. It, it it felt like everyone who was either a community leader or who really loved the game was there at Thelvio, and it created a really special experience. So, guys, Jeff, Val, tell me a little bit about your LVO experience. Yeah, it's just yeah, it's uh, it's something I've gotten to do now two years in a row, and uh, you know the first year lived up to expectations, and then this year surpassed that again. It was uh, just a phenomenal event. Um, I think uh, Frontline and and uh, you know you Pablo and all the people who are there to support just put in so much work. It's it's a staggering load in just to think of moving all the tables, setting up the train. And then when you enter the room and there's just this massive crowd of people who, uh, you know, are usually rare in regular life. You don't usually run into people who play 40K. We're, we're, we're pretty unique individuals. And, and yet here you are in a room with um, all these people who just sort of share the love for this game, which is just really great to nerd out on. And then you got all the the, the hilarious 40k celebrities that you get to go meet and and chat up that you might listen to on podcasts or see on YouTube and anyway the whole event is just a, a ton of fun um, and yeah it was great I would just echo his sentiments I agree on all accounts the train was great the um, BCP app other than Snafu did did go really well and it really makes tournaments run pretty smoothly I really enjoy that um, but while you know I'm there for the competition and that's that's my main drive. This year, it really kind of stuck out to me how lucky um, I am and we are to have the community that we do. It was really fun. It was it was a a very nice social event. Like I went out and had dinner with buds. I get to see people that I don't typically see. The East Coast meets the West Coast. We had guys over from England. We had a big unit of people from Canada, and I got to interact with them and play with them. And and um, that's really what it's kind of about. I know that sounds super stupid and cliche, but I find. Uh, when you've played the game enough and been to a lot of tournaments and stuff like that, the competition is obviously what keeps me coming back, but the community is really excellent. It's really awesome. And the LBO seems to be kind of that event that you can count on seeing everybody there. Yeah, I, I definitely look forward to that. This is my third LBO, or actually my fourth LBO. Um, but I look forward to seeing new faces, the same faces every year and, and the new faces. And, um, as, as someone who runs it, someone who didn't get a chance to play in it, uh, I'd like to thank everyone who came up to me and thanked me for my work with Chapter Tactics and thanked Reese and thanked Frankie and everything we do for the community. Uh, it's that kind of, you know, interaction with people that makes us, you know, really do what we want to do because we put a lot of hours into Frontline Gaming and the Las Vegas Open, the BAO and the SoCal Open. Um, so just keep that up. Keep, keep up the praise. So Sean Morgan did really well in the 40K narrative event with his Eldar. Beast Puppy killed it. I think he went 21-0 and against poor, poor Orc players. Uh, how did you guys do in the 40K champs? All right, I guess I'll, I'll lead it off. Um, well, it's a bit of a, you know, I've, I've been processing it all week. Uh, like I said, I had a great, great time, and um, but I, I was coming in with, you know, some pretty cool stuff to play for. I think that was, that's what made... Uh, you know, the LVO special for me this year, I was like six or seven points behind uh, Rich Kilden for best top orcs, which is, you know, winning anything is kind of an achievement for me. So I uh, I was coming in there. I knew I needed to put up a pretty good score We uh, or a pretty good record. We talked about it last week. And uh, unfortunately, you know, my first my first round, I come up to the table. 
I think I talked about number one, number one thing to remember is, is just to try and relax and stay calm. Instead, I was listening to uh, Darude's Sandstorm on my headphones. Mm. <laughs> I was really pumped up. I was, uh, and then I get to the table and there's this, uh, there's this fellow playing Tyranids. And I'm not gonna lie, I saw his list and I and I got a little cocky. There's a bunch of Tyranid warriors in it. It didn't look like, you know, the most optimum optimal build. I'm thinking, yeah, I got this, and uh, I pretty much blew it in my first movement phase. Uh, there's. There's uh, something special about the LVO is just how amazing the terrain is. So mm-hmm. like the uh, the amount of line of sight blocking, but beyond that, like buildings you can actually hide out in, um, things that you can really cut down. You know, firing lanes. It's 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 a tournament set up to really give armies like orcs you know, at least a fighting chance. And I had one in this game. Instead, I uh, I rushed everything up out of cover, set myself up for about four nine inch charges. And uh, failed them all completely. Mm-hmm. Uh, in in the in the first round, I lost 90 boys to shooting, uh, and uh, that was that was pretty much a wrap. I mean, I played the whole game out, and uh, I, I wasn't uh, wasn't mad at my opponent or anything like that. But I just made a real bungle. I, I I didn't need to push my chips in in the first movement phase like I did. Uh, and then you know you think you know maybe uh, you, know, you score eight points, you're gonna get a cupcake matchup. Maybe in the in the second round, they'll bounce back a bit, and I ran right into an endless plague walker list. Um, so yeah, I didn't <laughs> didn't go too well off the hop for me. So I, I have a question about that first game because because talking to you at the event, I felt like that first game really had an impact on you uh, day one. Like you you know you even even in day two when you were doing really well, um, you still talked about that first game. Do do you think there was anything you could have done differently? Like maybe uh, hiding your Sturm boys in buildings or something and holding off for oh, a guaranteed turn one charge or something oh yeah there's a thousand things i could have done differently i i just i you know there, there's when, when you have stuff that allows you to protect your units like a line of sight blocking piece of terrain that you know is nine inches tall or a building you can go jump in and still be able to zone out, uh, you know, things from deep strike. I was worried about, you know, he. I think he had a, a unit of devil gaunts in a, in, in a deep strike. He had a, you know, flying hive tyrant, which I was thinking about. But mostly, I figured that if I if I could go attack his castle of of all these tyrannid warriors, that, you know, they wouldn't be able to stand up to a couple ways of boys, and it wouldn't really matter. And I'm not even sure if I thought through it that well uh, as I just described it. I think I just got super horny and. Uh, put my boys in terrible position and just hung them out to dry and you know you don't always have to be aggressive uh like that 100 percent. i think had i listened to my own advice uh last week uh and just tried to stay calm and and think through you know what what is it that i need to do here um you know i would have made those moves and you know that's what happens sometimes you just get fired up and you make uh aggressive decisions and you pay for them Okay. Although I, I could have landed four charges too, but that's not how the dice rolled. And you don't want to, you don't want to put. This is actually, unfortunately, something I also learned at uh, at Atlanta. You don't want to ever hang, you know, your 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 strategy or or your your uh, your angle to win the game on on a on a fifty fifty dice roll. Um, you want to make sure that you know whatever you're doing to try and win that game has some outs. And I gave myself no outs. Hmm. So before we go on to your day two, I want to ask Jeff about his day one. Uh, because he also had uh, an interesting, stressful round one match as well. Yeah. Um, I was hanging out with Sean and some of the guys and just, you know, catching up with everybody. 
Sean Aiden. And for whatever reason, he jokingly said that I'm going to face Aaron A. Long first round. This is before pairings are up. We all laughed. I thought it was kind of a funny, mean thing to say. He was joking, of course. Then the pairings come up and I get Aaron A. Long. So he, <laughs> he like literally cursed me or told me who I'm going to face or whatever. Sean's amazing intuition strikes again. Um, it was my first time playing Aaron A. Long, uh, but he's, I think he finished number three in the ITC. He's one of the best players at the tournament. A very difficult opponent. Um, and I was leading for most of the game, but long story short, um, there's, there's some blood, sweat, tears, a lot of sass, a lot of snark, uh, not just from him, by the way. In fact, I would say I did most of the sassing. I'm a pretty sassy player at times. Um, but it came down to a single spore mine needing to blow up the last wound on a heavy teams guy for like a two or three point swing. Um, and, a, on a one, the game's a tie on a two through six, I win. And I rolled the fricking one. Um, and I already knew it was coming before I even rolled it. I, I think, I think my eyes were rolling before the dice was. So, um, that's how it is. It, it was still an honor and it's cool to have sat with him. And, uh, we were talking afterwards and, and, uh, made some camaraderie that way. But a tie is actually interesting at the LBO because it doesn't knock you out of the top eight. It allows you to like safely submarine. Um, so I finished out the day one, two, zero, and one, and I was feeling pretty good. Uh, I went into it to win. You know, I thought my list was very, very good. I know Terranos are very strong. I still think my list is good, but I guess we're going to go into day two, and that's where things took a, took a different turn. Okay. We started with Val last time, so let's go and continue day two with Jeff. Yeah, so a lot. Of, so I, I'm very public. I, you know, I've got this podcast with you guys. I uh, hang out with the frontline gaming guys and talk a lot. So a lot of people know how I feel about things, which is good and bad. Because going into the tournament, um, I knew I had a really good chance to get best Terranids, and I felt like I was in a place where I could even uh, place top eight. That was that was kind of my overall goal. I still haven't done that at the LVO, despite many years of being a very prominent tournament player. So I want it. I want it real bad. Um, and on day two, I started the first game against Reaper Spam. It's kind of funny because I can backtrack to a very specific thought process. In my area, not a lot of people play Eldar. Uh, and those that do play more eclectic lists as opposed to like spammy focus on one thing list. So I play against, uh, this, this gentleman who had joined Team Zero Comp, um, through Ben Cromwell in Idaho. So I actually hadn't met him, but I knew he was a very good player. And he had a big block of 10 Reapers. That I understand. They're Yonari. I understand that. Then he had like four units of three um, with an Exarch and, and two Dark Reapers. And I've seen this all over the place. I've seen in England. I've seen in the States, of course. And in my mind, I was always like, what's the what are they doing here? Like, is it just a, so you can't clear them very well? <laughs> well, boys, I learned what the fuck they're doing with that. And Those I guns. learned it the hard way. It's the goddamn Exarchs and they're in their... Um, no Tempest need for line of sight. Yeah, the Tempest yeah, Cannon. The Tempest so it's just cannon. spamming me with this minus two, 2d6 shots. And I'm sure everyone has the same story, but it felt like he rolled 2d6, but it was like, it was like 2d24s or something like that, and there was nothing below a 12. It was just so much DACA, and Eldar can be so accurate, especially with Exarchs. You know, they're rerolling ones naturally anyways, but you can cast Prescience, or not Prescience, but their own form of Prescience essentially. You can doom a unit, so if I have a big block of warriors like I did, they don't even need line of sight, they can just doom it. And all of this, um, you'd think I would have learned going in, you know, before the LVO with how many tournaments I play at, but just as luck would have it, it kind of slipped by. So that's the beauty and the curse of Warhammer. Like, had I had this information, I would have played the, the game very differently. 
but I didn't. And it was against the most prominent and successful race in the game right now. So it's a little, it's very much so like, Jeff, what are you doing? Um, so I don't blame anyone but myself. And then the second loss, um, as Val was talking about, was actually to a shared opponent between the two of us. It was this really nice young guy from Canada, which is, I guess, super redundant because all I had to say is he's from Canada. Um, and that <laughs> conveys all of what I just said. Definitely very, very well representative of, of, of the Canadian. Oh, yeah, absolutely. He's, he's not an imposter. Uh, <laughs> but I had the same kind of moment there where I'd already taken my loss. I'd already taken a tie. So in my mind, I'm out of the top eight. And now I'm just kind of playing for fun. Um, but that's not an excuse. I didn't I didn't pull off the gas with him. If anybody knows me, they know that I'm not really capable of that. I, I will not be at any narrative games because I would I would be the most unpopular narrative player there is. Um, so I tried. I, I wanted to win, but I took his list not very serious. And he did some really cute stuff with like uh, one of the Warlord traits for Terranids. You can pick a data slate and then the Warlord gets to reroll wounds against that. So he picked my Biovores, and he actually doubled his damage with one of the stratagems as well. So he was nuking a couple of Biovore units, but I made some mistakes too. Like I didn't, I don't know why my Biovores weren't just absolutely castled in the corner behind everything. I kind of spread them out. wasn't really. Th- I didn't. I just didn't take him serious. So he ends up getting that win. And it was a close game. And he's a great player, um, but that was disappointing. And that was, you know, two of the three games on day two. I end up losing, and I end the day. I end the tournament three, two, and one. Uh, which is okay, but when you're going there to hope for five and one or six and zero oh or something like that, it falls way off the mark. Um, but I'm not beating myself up too much about it, and I don't come away from it really hating Terranids or thinking my list was terrible or had some, you know, nobody cheated me, nothing like that. Um, I had a really good time, and I just didn't do as well as I would have liked, but it was because I made mistakes or I didn't know what I was facing, which is again my fault. Yeah, I then think. Uh... I don't know. That's that's some good insight. I think you can probably not never do enough preparation uh, when it comes to 40k. And I have to admit too that on that on that those units of three um, uh, units of three dark reapers. I also uh, leading up to the tournament had to ask an Eldar player like, why are you putting in these units of three? So I guess I was just lucky enough to ask that question. Yeah. So um, well, so yeah uh, yeah I guess we'll get get on to uh, to my. Uh, ending streak there so yeah i, I went zero and two ended the last game uh on on saturday or sorry on i guess it was friday uh with with a win so i got to to two sorry uh one and two which was a big relief to me it was nice to go out on that note it was versus uh, uh sort of like an admec gun line uh, you had a few different lines of of conscripts um at this i was also playing on a nice board with dense terrain it was hammer and anvil which I'm, i always get them mixed up i'm pretty sure that's the the long ways one so it was not my favorite uh, deployment type, especially against a gun line. But this time I was at least relaxed enough to be able to use cover appropriately. Uh, got my storm boys way up, and then just started locking in with uh, with conscripts. One of the most important things for uh, for I think like a close combat dependent army like what I was running is just grabbing on. You know, if there's chaff, everyone's like, you got to kill the chaff. Well, no, man, I want to go give that chaff a nice big hug. And uh, that's what I did, and then I was able to just work my way through his lines and and make contact with his guns. So that was a, a pretty pretty uh, pretty big win for me. Um, going into the second day, uh, I opened up against this again. This this one did not look op- optimized at all. It was like a dark Eldar Harlequin's list. Um, but learning my lesson from the previous day, I took him really seriously because uh, you know I although I had sort of missed on my overall tournament goals. 
you know, last year I went three and three at the LVO after starting pretty hot. And so, you know, having the, uh, I guess, opportunity to still pull it out and get to four and two was kind of a, you know, my, my new goal for the day. And uh, we play this this uh, really grinding game, uh, trading units all the way through. And it was the one where um, you had the objective that you if you uh, you got a bonus for having uh, the most amount of people within nine inches of it, I think, is was the bonus. Mm. And um, and so my boys finally kind of got over that that um, that uh, mid table hump, got into his deployment zone uh, and then just started mulching his uh, his witches and harlequins and things. Um, so it, uh, it, it was actually, he was leading all the way through the game. And at the end he sort of threw his hands up cause he was like, man, I hate it. You know, I, I was winning that whole game and I lost at the end and I was like, yep, I, I loved it. So <laughs> we moved on <laughs> yeah. to, uh, we moved on to, uh, I got to play next was, uh, was, uh, I believe it was, yeah, it was a Gilliman gun line. Uh, actually not, well, kind of a Gilliman gun line. It was Gilliman surrounded by devastators. Um, and in both of these games, actually, I had those. Um, you guys have probably seen them on the on the FLG stream or at the LVO if you were there. But they're like actual buildings with a roof. And in both of these these two games I've been describing, I had them sort of central on the table, so I was able to just fill them with, you know, storm boys, boys, weird boys, whatever, uh, and really just get a big foothold. And then against the devastators, I was also running uh, what I would say is my proudest piece of list tech, which was. The uh, Achilles Strongpoint with Vortex Missiles, um, which, in case you don't know, is D6 shots, uh, hitting on fives, but for each hit, you do D6 mortal wounds to a target. Wow. And, um, it, it, you know, it, it's a very hit-and-miss weapon, especially if you're going for the home run, because you're, th- you know, the, uh, you know, you have a chance of, you know, one-shotting pretty much any unit in the game with something like that, but that's a pretty slim margin. And uh, so by this point, I realized that basically if you pick on with that thing units of, you know, five wounds, six wounds, uh, you can punk them off really easily. So each turn I was just zapping one of his dev- devastator units and uh, and actually that guy was able to table him. Um, I hope it wasn't too rough of a game for him. He was pretty laid low by the end of it. But, uh, you know, I was, you know, battled back to, to three and two at this point. I'm feeling pretty good. And then I got to, and then I got to uh, get some revenge against Nurgle in the final game, um, so that was nice. Uh, his list was, uh, he's uh, actually I think on your t- team, Pablo. His name escapes me. Um, uh, Trevor but, Sandoval. Uh, Trevor Sandoval, and what a like just a real legit dude uh, was oh, yeah. was super calm, having a great time. We had a few beers throughout the whole thing, and uh, and uh, so yeah, he uh, had I guess. Yeah, some pops walkers, two very large blobs of uh, of uh, plague bearers. Is that the right one? The the Nurgle infantry demons. Yes. And uh, and then yeah. yeah, and and also a couple uh, demon princes, and then some havocs. You know, so there's a good mix of stuff. But again, dense terrain on this table. Use the train again, and uh, just was able to sort of win win the numbers game in in combat, and uh, took that game pretty closely, but still came out with a nice solid win. So I wound up at four and two, uh, which eh, I don't want to sound like a douche, but it was bittersweet for me because of how it started, and uh, you know, um, but yeah, at least the, I had that four four game streak to end it, and there's always next year. Right. So so going going back on the train because I'm glad you brought up those square buildings you were talking about, Val, mm-hmm. um, because there was a little bit of controversy at the Las Vegas Open about the terrain. Um, so for those of you guys who were listening to this wondering you know or waiting for me to tell you guys 
specifics like this, like uh, like the terrain. There there are complicated, large amounts of terrain, diverse terrain uh, at the Las Vegas Open. Um, so it's very hard to standardize the terrain at Delvio and give everyone a standard sheet. Like this is a ruin, this is terrain, airy terrain, this is a forest, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, so the ruling the LVO judges made was that if the building can be removed from its base, it's a ruin. And everything else is not a ruin. Everything else is um, line of sight blocking. True line of sight blocking, you can't go inside of it. Pieces of terrain. Uh, with, when Mike Brandt played, mm-hmm. I, I want to say Mitch Pelham. Mitch Pelham. Did you say the guy with the 16 The hell 16 hellhounds. It was Mitch. It was M- Mitch is a buddy of mine. We talked afterwards. Um, What's his name? Mitch, All I hear is Mitch 16 hellhounds. Mitchell Pel- so, 16 so, hellhounds. <laughs> he was he was the guy who was going to beat all those Eldar players, maybe. <laughs> but um, so Mike Brent played Mitch, and there was this there was a, a judge who ruled that all of the buildings were ruins, and, and obviously what that did for Mike was he was able to hide all of his infantry, a lot of hard hitting Blood Angels infantry in <clears throat> every single building he could find. Pablo. Um, <laughs> Pablo. What's up? By building, by the way, what Pablo means is literally a three inch by three inch, let's call it, pillar. Yes. That is a solid block of just like a tower. It's not it's, a building. It's, it's a tower. It's, it's a Necron it's table. A yes, it's a Necron of, table. Necron pillar. Yes. Uh, so, so uh, long story short, Mike was pretty much using every piece of terrain he possibly could, small or big, to hide units in. Uh, now, I, I actually agree with Mike at the end when he said that it ultimately didn't matter in their game um, because it was a rich, rough matchup for Mitch anyways because of the two ruins, the two big square pieces of terrain in the middle, um, and Mitch had an all-vehicle army and Mike had an all-infantry army. So I think I think ultimately Mitch had a tough decision in that he could either stay back and not let Mike charge his hellhounds and then give Mike all of these free victory points, or he could attempt to move up hopefully not get tied up by some death company and then get out of combat and roast them and win. Um, so Mitch went with the obvious, the, the one that gave him a better chance to win. Um, and it was a really rough Mike. matchup for many ways. Mike, Mike Brandt. Yeah. Yeah. For, uh, I'll talk um, more about this later. Cause I've, I've asked Pablo for a couple of soap boxes, but one of them, and it's more specifically to Tony Grappondo, but it's how you win. That's really important. And I fucking love Mike. I think he wears a leather jacket about as well as anyone. Uh, I'd put him up there with Charlize Theron, at least. Um, and he's a great player, and he had a great tournament. But when I heard what was going down here, this is that kind of thing we need to talk about. Uh, okay. He's, like, not technically wrong, again. And a judge did rule in his favor. But if we had a picture of this terrain, and, and we were to tell people that there were space marines jam-packing the walls of the inside of a... Uh, like literally a doorless, windowless pillar, so that build so that vehicles then could not interact with them, and that's how they decided the game. I think a lot of people would have the same reaction. Um, I, I think you're right. It definitely when, when I went by, it looked absurd. Uh, some of the trains, and but the other thing, I I have to take I have to kind of step away from this and remove my own opinion from this because I've been playing on these pieces of trains for forever like every time i play a game it's here in the studio and it's with that terrain so i'm very familiar with all the terrain and reese is also extremely particular about how what terrain does and where terrain goes on the table if you ever want to have a good time uh 
right before the tournament starts, if Reese is near a piece of terrain, move uh, a terrain, move terrain around on a Necron table. Uh, okay, it, but don't it, actually do that because they'll piss him off. It, it'll it'll make him mad. Um, but it, the Necron tables, I I can't tell where anything goes on the Necron table at all. It's just it's an obscure, abstract line, streak line, matrixy kind of deal. Um, the buildings are cool, but they don't really make any sense. Uh, but Reese has this vision where he knows exactly where everything goes, and that's the way it's supposed to go on this abstract map, right? And that's for all of them. The the orc terrain, the uh, the really cool citadel terrain that we just got, the city terrain, all of them. So then that's actually one of the reasons why Velvio has such diverse terrain as well, because our terrain sets are designed to a mat, but they're not designed to a format or a standard. So we don't have something like Nova, where you have the two big L-shaped line of sight blockers in the center, and then the, the hill with the barricades, and, you know, it, every terrain is, every piece of terrain is different at, every uh, table is different at the LVO. Uh, I think, I think which we this like. topic, this topic touches on, I think, a couple uh, different nerves that uh, surfaced at, at, at this particular LVO, and I, and I don't want to steal any of Jeff's thunder, so I won't, I won't get into it but the role of you know judges and officiating is is big in this particular story and then yeah i guess i guess terrain as well i mean you know just from the terrain perspective i played actually the uh the, the harlequin dark eldar game uh, that that we played on uh was on one of the and we're saying necron but actually it's robot city oh um, sorry robot city uh, terrain. <laughs> robot city it, it is not uh, in any way shape or form games workshop uh, associated with uh, Necrons at all. It is our Robot Absolutely. City terrain. It's robot City TM. And anyway, but, you know, I kind of in- intuitively, I-, I didn't try to go into inside any pillars. And in the, on the on those tables, there are buildings that sure look like they're supposed to be buildings, and there's stuff that looks like they're supposed to be obelisks, you know. So I don't know. I think I'm kind of with Jeff on this one. Uh, but sometimes, in, you know, intuitive doesn't pass when you're when you're looking for every edge you can get. Yeah, and, and so one final thing on this, guys. Uh, if for those of you who are at the Las Vegas Open and also listen to my podcast, um, what was my when, when I mentioned it before the Las Vegas Open, I did mention the terrain that you would see at the Las Vegas Open. I I, I tried to spend like a good five minutes on it. And did for those of you who were at the LVO, did you feel like my instructions like they did they help you? And my instructions were basically you need infantry melee infantry units to dominate the center of the board and dominate those big square buildings that's yeah. that's by far the best way to compete at the lvo and that's the meta that's part of the meta um in eighth edition. I, I think i think you could tell that and and jeff you can jump in on this too because i think your list design probably factored in uh flg style terrain um but i think you can see that a lot of the people who did wind up in the top um, although the Eldar lists, well, the Eldar lists were almost mirrors of each other um, by design, but uh, you know, I think they really anticipated that you know strong infantry, things that could take advantage of moving in and out of ruins, um, were um, going to have a, a real advantage. And like, if I was big on Tyranids as as being a potential list build. Uh, what what was really hot on the same weekend and the weekend previous were you know uh, big time hive tyrant lists. Um, big monsters, uh, just things that you know are really tough, durable, and have a lot of damage output. But at the LVO, a lot of the top players probably could have. I mean, you can f- probably find hive tyrants at you know the local thrift shop at this point. There's so many <laughs> of them around. Um, like I think a lot of the top players probably scouted the terrain, probably knew uh, that you know monsters that can't even enter 
a lot of these these things um, would be at an extreme disadvantage and moved away from them. Like um, I wonder too if that's maybe what gave um, you know the uh, ten blight crawlers or, or whatever they are uh, you know a bit of a disadvantage too is that people you could hide if you had infantry you could get out of the way, which again makes me feel so bad about my first game. Over to you, Jeff. I like I said I'm gonna talk about it later. So. Yeah, fair. So, and and this is something for this is a, just a general tournament advice for you guys as you're going to tournaments, planning for the train is a specific strategy um, that you need to know when you're building your list. So it's not like the FLG guys hate vehicles and hate monsters and, and you know, want to see all Gilliman's, Magnuses, and Mortarians, and Plague Burst Crawlers destroyed. Like, that, that's not true at all. That That's kind of just how the ITC terrain was designed. Kind of like how when GW designs stuff, um, and, and they kind of design things, they don't intend it to be played a certain way. That's just kind of like, because that looked cool. Like, that's how they designed it, intended it. Um, same thing, same thing with, uh, with the ITC terrain. Um, a lot of it was just designed. We, we thought that looked cool. We want to sell it, obviously. Um, and we decide what was ruins and what wasn't ruins. That's kind of how it shook out. Uh, that's the terrain that was provided to us. So every, every terrain, every tournament is different. Every piece of terrain, uh, Nova has their own standard. Adepticon has their own thing. The LVO has their own thing. And knowing what kind of terrain you're going to see in tra- face is very important. It's just as important as knowing what armies list you're going to play. So keep that in mind, guys, when you're building your lists when you go to tournaments. Now, I think we can move on to the top eight because there's a lot of stuff to cover in the in the top eight. Uh, I I I don't I kind of want to uh, say something real quick and then I want to let Jeff kind of take it away because uh, I also don't want to steal Jeff's thunder. Um, but I'd like to say that the top eight was was predicted by Jeff. First off, congratulations, Jeff. He predicted four to five Eldar players playing in the top eight. I was wrong. Not a single orc or Tyranid player made the top eight. Um, I was really wrong, actually. Uh, but the, there was a lot of good moments, I think, in the top eight. And as as we look towards the future of competitive 40k in general, I think this LVO will go down in history as a turning point for the community and for the game. Um, so there's a lot of good stuff in it. How about the Blood Angel player? I mean, nobody predicted that. Mark, nobody right? said no one. A Absol- Blood Angel player. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Let me take a second to give Mark his due. Mark Wright is uh, not the best player in the world. He, he would admit that himself. Imagine a guy who goes to your local tournaments who goes one and five, two and four with the same Blood Angels style lists, like Furiosa Dreadnoughts and Dreadnought Draw Pods or whatever. Right? He always brings these lists because he loves Blood Angels. And he loves playing pure Blood Angels. You know, he doesn't want his Gilliman in his Blood Angels army. He doesn't want to ally in Celestine. He wants to run Blood Angels. And on top of that, Primaris Intercessors, the because GW intended people to use them, and by golly, he's going to use them. So this guy, Mark Wright, was a good friend of mine. Went to the LVO, and he's been training nonstop. Now, I didn't actually know this before he made the top eight. He told me afterwards, but he's been training with Don Hoosen, who I consider probably, he's probably in the top 100 best 40k players. Don is a, a phenomenal player. He's a good list builder, and he knows his stuff. So he's been training with Don Hoosen in Arizona, and he became a, this really intelligent player. And I got a chance to watch his final game, his round six game, and his top eight game, and you know he knows his stuff. And he was running a pure Blood Angels list. He, he was running Blood Angels with Sanguinary Guard and Primaris Intercessors. Uh, it was really off the wall, and he ended up going 6-0. I, I feel like he was the real Cinderella story of the tournament. 
And I want to congratulate you, Mark. You are an inspiration for all players who want to go to a tournament and win their own way mm-hmm. and not netlist. Mark, you proved it. You were the man. Got to work hard. Good job, yeah, I did great. All right, Jeff, take it away. Uh, so I guess under the umbrella of top eight, I, I would branch off and talk about one of the, the big hot button topics that is permeating throughout the community and one of the big takeaways from the event itself, and that is winning the right way and kind of the code of conduct of a competitive Warhammer 40k player and what you can expect or what you can hope to strive for, I think. Um, and a lot of these guys got up there, and I think one of the things we can just go ahead and establish as the kind of background for this is that 40K is on the rise. It's 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 got decent stream numbers. People are watching it. If you look at the competitive Facebook group, there's 7,000 people there. Frontline Gaming gets a lot of hits, Bell of Lost Souls, et cetera, et cetera. The point is people really do enjoy 40K, and one of the avenues of that enjoyment is the competitive aspect. So they're watching, they're consuming media, it's big. And with 8th edition blossoming the way it has, tournament attendance is up, prize pools are starting to swell, there's people traveling more often, everything is ramping up. So with that comes a lot of things, but one of the things that comes with that is the desire to separate yourself and excel and to be one of the people that people look up to and say, wow, you're a you're an ITC champion or you're one of the best players or you're the captain of Team USA or you know all these different accolades that are available to us. Um, so that's the kind of backdrop I would say. I acknowledge that these things are happening and that these people in a vacuum making a choice probably do something differently, but with all this pressure, with all this speed, with all this momentum, maybe they don't make the best choice. Um, and that doesn't make them bad people. It just means that in these situations, we need to talk about what is expected of each other and, and what would be the best way to go about it. So in that top eight, we have, of course, Tony Grappondo. And, of course, the the kind of famous event that happened was um, in his semifinal match against Alexander Fennell, who's one of the most storied, successful Warhammer 40K players. Um, there was some issues. And I'm going to branch off into this. And, and I'm very long-winded, so I'll give you guys a chance to jump in there, too. But, you know, let, I, I, I'm very passionate about this. Two things happened for me, two big takeaways. One, Tony defaced himself and, and acted in such a way that is very easy for us to lump into, well, that's the worst, you know, that's the whack player. That's the worst. So that's why I don't go to tournaments. All the stuff Pablo talked about at the beginning, the assumptions around that, the negativity, this is the kind of thing. Um, and just to break it down real quick, he, uh, Alex to speed up the game on his turn and to negate the fact that Tony took one, over one hour to take his first turn, which is, inexcusably bad by the way there's only two and a half hours allotted to these players you should be taking 15 minute turns an hour is horrible um alex dropped in his assassin first which is supposed to be at the end of the movement phase tony was such a nice guy he actually helped him measure it out and make sure that he put it you know more than nine inches away from anything and and then afterwards informed him that since he dropped his assassin all of his other movement is now uh nolan boyd which is technically correct you're not supposed to do that um, and that's that's the little lockup there where some people are like, well, maybe, you know, it, you know, he's just he's just holding him to the letter of the game. That's fine and good. But there's actually so many rules. There's so much going on in Warhammer 40K that you don't play your opponent's army for them. But if you have a situation where clearly someone is making a choice, not that strategic, they're not trying to cheat. They're not like forgetting to shoot a weapon and you, you need to be like, hey, dude, you actually have a 
40d6 strength 10 minus 16 damage shotgun that you need to shoot now and they're like oh thanks man i forgot about it like that's not how it is this is a very back and forth mechanic thing that had no impact on the game and tony pulled a gotcha on him to basically win the game um that kind of stuff can and does happen but i and i wrote an article on this on frontline gaming you've seen a lot of people talk about so i'm not going to break into this too deeply i very specifically Go ahead. I'm just going to interrupt you one second here because I don't. Want, I know you probably won't won't say it, but for those of you people who haven't seen the article, I highly recommend that you go out and read it. Uh, Jeff did a fantastic job with it. I read this afternoon. Uh, definitely worth your time. Oh, uh, thank continue. you. Well, one final thing. I want to cut off a lot of people at the pass here. Uh, a lot of you guys are. Well, you told me personally, Jeff, Reese, a ton of people were asking for Tony's head. Um, and going a really bit extreme. I just want to say something. We don't, none of us on this podcast, and I think I, I don't let me speak for Jeff and Val, but I think I, they will agree with me when I say that none of us condone what, what Tony did. None of us are on Tony's side. You know, each of, I think each of us can agree that, that what he did was wrong. Right? So, so we're not, you know, making excuses for Tony. We're not defending Tony, uh, to defending Tony's actions. Uh, you know, he did already apologize as well um <clears throat> but i think we're trying to take a more level-headed fair approach um whereas uh, other people online are, are obviously a bit more passionate um and i think there's a middle ground in a gray area for us for everyone to explore here um, so i just wanted to say that so don't so go don't go online and say oh we we we're we are also cheating whack players because we defended tony grappando like that that's not true just to get that out of the way now Okay. okay. Also not what I'm saying at all. Um, but the point I really want to make here is winning the right way, which is an extremely important concept that is unofficial. It's not written down. Uh, it won't get you thrown out of a tournament. It, it, it's, it's something that you have to learn through experience. And a young guy like Tony, who has won tournaments, who has made big success, probably is aware of this concept, but it's really important to kind of string it out and pull it out of this subject and make it into something bigger. Um, and this is where I would also kind of cross apply it to what I felt like was uh, something that's going on with Mike Brandt's game against the, the feller that had the, the hellhounds. But it's not just these guys. These are examples that I want to use to illuminate my overall issue. You win those games. You go on past that as both these guys did. And the win itself becomes something else. It becomes just a, a round. Nobody talks about the actual win. They talk about how you won. And if you feel like you're bullshitting someone, if you feel like you're gotchaing somebody, and especially with how public these games are getting, with how much is at stake, with you know both these opponents, Alexander Fennell's from Connecticut, he traveled a long ways. Um, I'm not sure where the Hellhound guy's from, but I'm guessing it's not Las Vegas. The point is, both these people also have their own excitement. If you're winning games by bullshitting someone, and in this case it would be saying, yep, sorry, you don't get to move your entire assault army now because... You did something out of order of operations or, yeah, I'm cramming space Marines into negative space because a judge defined it as that's OK to do. But you like neither of these guys can look you in the eye and be like, that's absolutely how it should be played. That's absolutely what I think. In fact, Tony Grappando did apologize and talk about how that's not how he wants to do it. Mike Brandt's a fucking awesome guy and this wasn't that big of a deal. Uh, I'm making it more of a big deal, I guess, because I, I want to talk about this concept. But if I were to have a, I think he drinks probably vegan um free traded tea is what i would guess he he drinks and he probably takes it with a english biscuit if we were to have this meal together i'd look at him and be like mike 
you're putting goddamn space marines inside of negative space. And he'd be like, yeah, the judge said it. I'd be like, Mike. And then we'd tickle each other a little bit. And he'd probably admit that it's bullshit. So at the end of the day, if that's if that's how you're winning, if that's how you're doing something, there's even that twinge moment where it's like, eh, this is bullshit. Don't do it. Don't be that guy. Be gracious. And there's so many people that want to do the online commentary of like, uh, how do, how do I that's Jeff you idiot how do I tell if someone if someone puts their stuff and I'm like I have an interceptor stratagem is it my job to tell them about it no but if they ask you if you have interceptor and you say and you you're like it's mighty sunny outside today and you just don't answer or something like that then pull it on them did that feel like bullshit because if it did then don't do it now there's going to be infinite examples of this and I don't want to get into yeah. a debate about it but the point I want to make is the impact this has. And there's a tale of two people. So Tony, he's apologizing. It sucks. There are people calling out for his head, as, as Pablo was trying to kind of talk about. Um, he's, in a, he's in a rough spot. There are repercussions coming down the line, as people will find out pretty soon. On the other side of this is Alexander goddamn Fennel, who was such a, an incredible beacon of good sportsmanship that mm-hmm. even though he lost that game, guess what people are going to be talking about? how he handled it, and what he did with that message. Not everyone is aware of this, but Mark Merrill, the co-owner and founder of Riot Games, saw this game, tweeted at Frontline Gaming and said, I want to give a $5,000 donation to Alexander Fennel because of his sportsmanship. What does Fennel do? He takes the next level of high ground that nobody even knew was there and says, (laughs) I want to donate that to a children's foundation. Now what's happening is they're all talking together, they're going to do uh, an interview with each other, and they're going to talk about sportsmanship. And it's going to be a really nice, cool, good message to come out of this. And I, for one, and I'm sure many others, are inspired by someone like Alex Fennell, uh, Fennel, excuse me, who like could have rightfully flipped out. And in fact, I can't help but to be a little bit introspective, because I had this really tumultuous game with Aaron Along, and a judge came over on like the, the sixth hour or something. And uh, it wasn't the sixth hour, but, you know, the latest hour of which I had not had the majority of the time, by the way. And I'm, I'm sure Aaron would be uh, feel comfortable sharing that as well. And the judge goes hard dice down in three minutes. And it wasn't even the bottom of six yet. So I would have just lost the game. My response. I mean, let's do this. So Alex Fennell's response would have been right. Oh, that seems a bit unfair. But I agree. <laughs> with you Jeff's response. I bellowed across the table. I will get arrested. Suggesting. That it would commit battery and assault on this guy. <laughs> now, it's John, and he knew I was mostly joking, so he laughed. But he could have also just been like, get this fucking guy out of here. Because, I, you know, that's not an appropriate response. Anyways, long story short, be like Alex Fennell. Read the article for more details. But how you win matters. I've talked for like 10 minutes straight. I have one more subject to talk about, but I want to give you guys some space to talk to. Yeah, that, that and the subject will definitely deserve its own little segment. Yeah. <clears throat> um, I, uh... Go ahead, Val. Could I jump? And I don't know yeah. if, if this is the right time to talk about it, but I'd love to relate this to uh, the concept of, of judges versus referees. Is that something we could uh, – Yeah, do it. Sure. What do you got? Just go on and – yeah. I, I, um, 40K is is an interesting game because, in, a, in, a, in, a, in essence, you're calling it yourself, right? You know, you're both uh, – you, the, the two players are coming together and – uh, are responsible for you know making the game go. If we're playing a video game, the the arbitrator of it is obviously the code and the and the actual game that you're playing. But here you're you're making it up, and 
that results in the fact that, you know, the players are the ones who really are the referees, right? So they're going to be the ones who need to, um, you know, make the judgments about whether or not the other player is playing fairly, trying to pull a fast one, doing things that are bullshit. And uh, really the only outlet that they have is to call a judge. And the judge, a judge, is only able to really look at rules and has to make uh, an interpretation of those rules about whether or not what's going on is right or wrong. Um, so I think some of the stuff and, you know, you're saying it's, it's all Tony's fault, but well, not, you know, that we're not defending Tony, but I do I feel like, that. yeah, yeah that, that, I, I, you didn't say that Pablo didn't say that. Uh, <laughs> what I mean by that is, is that, um, when you are at an event like this, which is the pinnacle of something that you care passionately about, you've prepped for, you've traveled for. And, you know, you are one of the people in the room who has a chance at winning the whole thing. You know, there's going to be a lot of pressure on yourself to take it as far as you can. And also an expectation that your opponent's probably going to do something similar. Um, And I think when you get into a competition like that, that's usually when you start to see things like referees evolve. People who are there to actually call the game and are the ones responsible, who have the onus to call players on their bullshit rather than having that onus on the players themselves. Uh, And I think the big difference there is too, is that strong personalities, people who have that will to win that like crushing drive, the, the win at all costs type of players will always rise closer to the top. In this case, you know, there's a heroic moment at the end, but if, if it's on, if it's on the personalities to call the game always, um, then, you know, the strongest willed people tend to carry the day. And I, and so I think, I hope, and we were saying that maybe this is a turning point moment, um, you know, I'm lucky enough, uh, recently I was uh, named to the, the, the Canadian ETC team Congrats. and, um, thank you. And, uh, and over there, you know, I think probably because at some point in the history before streaming, there was probably a Tony Grappando moment, um, you know, they have, a very defined code of conduct for calling bullshit. They have a referee system and they have a lot of structure around, you know, how games are called and adjudicated. And, you know, I think that's not necessarily something you need at an RTT, uh, but that might be something worth looking at in, in, in for future, you know, legitimately major events, things like the LVO, Adepticon, Nova. Get there. Everything's yeah, escalating. There'll, there'll, there'll be a commissioner even, and then there's going to be, uh, More a, head, a, a judge, a judge group, or some sort like what the DCI Probably a judge has. per table in the top eight, that kind of stuff. Yeah, all that kind but, of stuff. I think that's really that's that's how you because I I don't feel bad for Tony, but I also I think and Jeff, you know your your article. That's why I really think people should read that article. Is it does a really great job of empathizing with, you know, where this behavior comes from. It's not acceptable uh, at the end of the day, but it's I think ultimately understandable. We know mm-hmm. why it happens. And I think there are also, with events that have the scale to do it, there are ways to mitigate it and make sure that, you know, uh, people are playing the right way, even if maybe their instincts would take them in a different direction. Right on. Yeah. <clears throat> so let's shift gears here a little bit because we left you guys with an unfinished story. Because, oh, there's more, actually. And one thing I, I loved about the Las Vegas Open and what, what the thing that I love the most, the reason why I created this ch- podcast about tournaments is the narrative that, that drives tournaments and the intrigue and what people talk about before and after the tournaments and kind of, kind of where, where history is made. Right. So you have this topic 
Uh, not only do you have Josh Death, who who is a uh, Admitted, he admitted this himself, so it's okay that I say this. Who is widely regarded as uh, someone with a bad reputation, uh, Josh Death. He he knows he has a bad re- reputation, and he told me at the event that he's trying to fix it. He's trying to turn over a new leaf. <clears throat> so Josh Death plays Brad Chester round six. They record. They get the recorded the pairing uh, the points wrong. Josh Death wins by one point. Brad Chester comes in at the beginning in the morning of the top eight and tells Josh, hey. Uh, we misrecorded our scores, our results, and we actually found out that I win by one point because we for, we got forgot to record these two points somewhere, some some sort of deal, right? So Brad Chester wins. So Josh <clears throat> tells a judge, and I know this actually happened to you, Jeff, last year as well at mm-hmm. um, at the LVO, and uh, the judge stance is very clear on this. It's you guys already entered your BCP scores. Sorry, it's over. And th- this is actually reminiscent of a time when I was younger, when I was watching football, I watched uh, Steve Mariucci for the 49ers play a game, a playoff game, and they won by a field goal. Last second field goal. This is a big deal. Steve Mariucci, the 49ers, is really happy. Uh, I think they're sending the Cowboys home. And they make this field goal, and the very next morning, they show instant replays of this, and even though the refs signaled it a field goal, it the ball actually hit the upright in the middle and bounced out and never actually went into the field goal. So when the reporters asked Steve Mariucci, uh, "What do you guys, what do you think about this new turn of events? Like, are you gonna concede?" and Steve Mariucci just looks at the press, says one word, "Bummer," and then walks out. Right, just mic drop, like, because that's the result. That's what happened. That's, that's what. That's typically what you see at sporting events. Is the, once the results are in, they're in. Josh Death, on the other hand, gave up his top eight to Brad Chester, put a fifth Eldar player into the top eight, which I will, I will never forgive Josh Death for. Because a fifth Eldar in the top eight is is for uh, press coverage is not good press. Um, <clears throat> but all joking aside, he did that. He did the very honorable thing, and no, with no evidence at all, he gave up his top eight to the Bradchester. So you have this you have this Josh Death giving up his spot to Bradchester in the top eight, and I want I want to give Josh Death his his uh his due because I felt like it was a very good thing to do, and just shows how how much good there is in the community. You have Mark Wright and his Blood Angels. You have Mike Brandt, a GW playtester, uh, making the top eight at the LVO, which just goes to show that GW knows how to pick its playtesters. Uh, you have Alex Fennell with Space Wolves. He's Space Wolves primary listed, so you've got a Space Wolves player in the top eight, even though it's really Imperium featuring Space Wolves. <clears throat> and then you have these, these Eldar players who, at face value, you see Jeff Poole and other Eldar players, but these Eldar players actually sat at Sean Naden's house for two weeks, working on this Eldar list. So th- this is a finely tuned Eldar list. It's not a it's not a net list. They they did not pull this Eldar list from someone randomly in Australia or whatever. They designed this list to win this tournament, which is why Nick Nadavati called it the Elvio winning list, right? So this Eldar list, <clears throat> you have all these Eldar players. They are clearly the villains, and you you start to see a narrative unfold. So fast forward, Sean Naden loses to Tony Grappando. Sean Aiden's obviously a phenomenal player. There's some controversy there, which I won't get into, because there's a lot going on there. Uh, Tony plays Alex Fennell, beats Alex Fennell, and you have Nick Nadavati and Tony in the finals. Right, so two Eldar players in the finals. At the beginning, if you were to ask me, Pablo, there's two Eldar players in the finals, uh, is the narrative for your event dead? I would have said yes. I'd been like, ugh, Eldar finals. However, the Alex Fennell and Tony Grappando uh, event kind of shifted the whole tone of the final table. And you had Nick Navadi, this this hero, right, Hulk Hogan, 
and you had Tony Grappando, this Triple H level WWE villain, right? Who's who's just being tortured on Twitch, right? Nonstop. You, you have this huge intrigue, big entertainment deal. Nick Navati, Tony's Tony, uh, with with the epic Tony got Tonyed Twitch thirty second video. It's it's pretty funny. <clears throat> and Tony gets his just desserts and loses to Nick Nottavati, uh kind of like a lovable hero drunk type, uh, I like to call him. Um, he wins Best Eldar at the ITC, Best Eldar at ITC, Best Eldar at the LVO, Best LVO player for the Best General, and obviously the ITC champion. He takes everything away from Tony, and it, it's I felt like the narrative behind it couldn't have written itself more perfectly, um, and it drove a lot of excitement for the LVO and for... 40k tournaments in general, and I think all of that will overshadow what happened with Tony in the long run. And I just wanted to share that story with you guys because I was fucking pumped the whole time. I was like, what's going on? What's happening? Tony did what? Nanavati beat Tony? It was crazy. And when Nanavati told Tony that, that he wasn't allowed to take back the charge <clears throat> for the... because I guess he, he used like a stratagem, you have to use it in the movement phase. When he told him that, the everyone who was watching and the Twitch chat just erupted and it was great. So, uh, I hope to see more of it at, at and I hope more large events like Adepticon stream their uh, their top tables and cover their events because I feel like that's like that's what the next step to making 40k an entertainment you know spectator sport. So it's cool. Me too. <clears throat> All right, let's talk about slow play. We've, we've been dodging it long Let's. enough. <laughs> so, solutions for slow play. I have a bunch written down. I talked to uh, everyone in the oh, top. No, eight. this is my second soapbox. Okay, l- l- let me set let me set the let me set it real quick, and I'll let you I'll let you finish. Okay. Mm-hmm. All right. So, I talked to everyone in the top eight. I have solutions for slow playing. Uh, we're definitely going to talk about it. Jeff's going to Jeff's chomping at the bit. I can tell. Um and. I, I didn't take this research lightly. I, I asked a lot of people, and this will be hopefully you guys will get enough out of all of this small segment to to form your own opinions and go online and be assured that something will get figured out. All right, Jeff, take it away. Well, this will be quicker, I think, but uh, maybe even more impassionate. The thing is, all y'all, and I'll say this very confidently, are slow fucking players. Now, there's going to be everyone that hears that and go, Jeff, you son of a bitch. I am not a slow player. I finished five of my six games, and that's fine and good. But everyone needs to speed up. There's some misconceptions. Eighth edition plays faster than seventh. No, it doesn't. You only need two and a half hours to play a game? Maybe, but that's if you wear fucking sweatbands, a sleeveless shirt, and you haul ass. (laughs) <laughs> I'm so tired of seeing people bring 200 guardsmen, 250 orc boys, 150 termagants, whatever, and then get to game four. And when you ask them, you're like, hey, how come you're not finishing your games? They'll always be like, oh, my opponent's psychic face. <laughs> no, stop. You're all slow players, and that's okay. The first step to not being a slow player is to stop thinking you're not a slow player. You're a slow fucking player. So at these tournaments... There's ways to speed up, and we can get into the minutia of that, but I think the most important thing is this is top-down. This is not bad players versus good players. This is everybody. Nick Nanavati won one of his games against Brad Chester um, in that round to go to the finals. 
merely because Brad Chester, who had the bottom of the turn, didn't have his last two turns. He was down by about eight to ten points most of the game. On the last turn, he got eight points. Nick was cooling off, and if the game would have gone on for two more turns, Brad Chester probably would have won. Nick Nanavati doesn't win the ITC. He doesn't get $4,000. He doesn't face Tony Grippondo. All these weird things don't happen, but, I mean, that that's just then. Who knows what happens before that? And the, the list goes on, and I'm not going to name names across the board, but the point is people play slow, and this is one of the subjects we were talking about um, with some of these guys while we're watching these games, and it's a misconception. You think if you're a better player, clearly you finish your games. You do not. In fact, a lot of times when the two better players hit each other, the game actually takes longer because they know that, and this is something Val said earlier, you can lose a game in a movement phase. You can lose a game in a deployment. So a lot of times these players slow down, these phases take longer, and it gets it gets pretty ugly. Tony Grappano had an hour-long deployment and turn against Alex Fennell. Is he, quote-unquote, like actually trying to slow play? Like, is he actually going to spend two and a half hours and then look up at Alex and go, checkmate, motherfucker, <laughs> the game's over, I got one point. No, I don't think that's what he was trying to do. But he's facing Alex Fennell, who, if you've ever looked at him, has pulsating brain veins all over his head and wears glasses that could have been Coke bottles. The guy is a gigantic walking cranium. If you make a mistake, his eccentric, weird-ass space wolf list will crush your soul, like it has in all the other rounds. So there's a reason why these games slow down, and just throwing it off as they're slow playing, maybe that's happening sometimes, but please do not give that more credence than than that it maybe happens sometimes. What's actually happening is the misconception that the addition's faster, followed by the, the, the pickup of momentum that this game has, the more important matches. And then the last one is we just need to address that individually we all have to play faster. Now, this stems off into other degrees here as well, and I'm almost done. My rant's almost over. But when I sit, stand at my table and my opponent's playing slower... I have to be a dick, and I hate that. I played some really nice guys that weekend, and I had to apologize because I kept being like, hey, you're taking too long. And I'm up by 20 points or something, so it's not even like I'm worried that I'm going to lose. It's that I need more time to get more points off of them because they're slowing down my score as well. That kind of stuff can happen. That's just an extreme example, but the point is, the idea that you playing slow is only affecting you is also a fallacy. It actually hurts your opponent one way or the other. I had a lot of people online, and I met a lot of people there, that were furious because they only played two or three rounds of all their games. Now, they're probably partially to blame, almost certainly, in fact, but the fact of the matter is people are coming away from these tables upset. Now, if two people step up to that table and make it their business to finish the game, guess what tends to fucking happen? it usually ends. It usually goes to six, and it's usually a great time. But you don't get to take 35-minute turns, and you do not get to really think things out. you got to think about it on your player turns. So that's my rant. We all need to address this. Pablo, I'm glad you did research on how we can speed this up, because I think that's that's a great place to take it. But your guys' turn. All right. Uh, Val? Uh, yeah, first of all, that was a wonderful rant. I think it's... Uh, Thank you. Th- those, are all, those are all points very well taken. Uh, I guess uh, I don't know if you've ever played, you know, horde style Tyranids, but perhaps, you know, you're as acutely aware of, you know, needing to move as quickly as you can as, say, an orc player like myself is. Um, and, you know, I, I know personally that, you know, 40K is hard. And I think you touched on this 
Absolutely. Um, <laughs> I think you touched on this, like the good players. I, I don't know. I don't know if they're slow playing or if they're just playing perfect 40 K, you know, perfect 40 K is hard. And, and I think actually that's one of the real, you know, uh, kicks in the nuts that, that the, 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 uh, Fennel Grappando thing does is that, you know, that whole playing by intent thing is an effort to be able to move faster. And, uh, he kind of got robbed by that, but the, all those points aside, you know, there's also, you know, all kind of maybe this might lead into Pablo's thing. You know, I have done things like I don't run 180 boys. I put a I, I put a strong point in my list so that instead of just having more boys to get killed, take more time, mm-hmm. I just keep them alive for longer <laughs> and I have a useful fortification. You know, I run on uh, magnetized movement trays. I keep all of my um, my units completely organized on on my on my tray at all times so that I can deploy them as quickly as I can. I'm still slow, you know. Like so, There's a bunch uh, I of love. Things. You know, I'd I love to hear. I'd, I'd love to. I, I'm really looking forward to to more solutions. One thing too. I this is something that I really want to shout out because it barely got any coverage. I think this is something that can really help. Is the uh, assault dice app that G, GW uses for those people yeah. who are running and throwing buckets of dice. Uh, LVO didn't even care. You know, I walked up. I'm like, hey, can I use this dice app? And, you know, John's like, yeah, of course you can. It's a GW product. I'm like, wow. <laughs> I, I had I had literally had sheets printed about why it was a legit thing to use. And uh, and so I used it. You know, every time I went into a, a combat, anytime I was picking up, you know, say more than 30 dice, I was able to use an app and resolve that combat probably five times faster, like unbelievably faster. So anyway, those are just a bit of a ramble over over to Pablo with, with maybe some one, solutions. One, I one quick question before I go on. <clears throat> Val, did you feel a lot of pushback for using that app? Not once. <clears throat> Great. But I, every, I would every say time, generally people would be uncomfortable with it. Not yes. that it's wrong to use it, but you should expect pushback if you use it. People are uncomfortable with an app. Yeah, well, Val's, I would, Val's Canadian, you know. I, this is this is what I'm going to say about the app. First of all, and uh, first of all, we need to stop um, saying it's okay to be uncomfortable with the app because I think it is. I think it is a game changing tool uh, for certain list builds. Um, I, second of all, if you do the, the, the due diligence on it, a lot of people are like, well, it's just a, I'm using a, a Jeff mocking voice yeah. here, but you know, it's, it's just a, it's just a random number generator. It's not actually, it's a Vegas legal dice simulator that uses a physics engine to roll the dice. So it is, it is, they are virtual dice. Um, it's, um, you know, I've actually reached out to the developers of this app to, to get more info, to try and, you know, get them out and, and, uh, and, and talking to the community, Unfortunately, I haven't been able to get that going. But the the thing is, is that it's not just an app. It's actually something that's got a lot of of tech behind it, and it's I don't know. I think a really strong potential solution for speeding up. Because I think honestly, one of the the if if we were to clock what takes the most amount of time, it's probably movement and dice rolling. I guess there's not really much left in the game. Um, but you know, certainly dice rolling. Like my boys, if they all get into base contact, it can be 120 dice. You know, so um, just just finding the hits in that pile takes me takes me time. So yeah, anyway, so the TLDR there is he likes the app, but there are <laughs> other ways to speed up your gameplay. So like if you're charging five the boys way, Jeff. with Mortarian or something, and the guy's like, "Hang on, let me Overwatch with their pistols." Uh, if the game's been taking slow, or you need <laughs> to find a place to speed it up, that's an idea. A lot of times when you're moving the blobs, and this is something that one of my very good opponents was obnoxiously consistent about in seventh edition you had to measure everything right you need perfectly space there's templates there's all that kind of stuff sure in eighth edition don't cheat 
right? So if you roll a, a six for your advance and you've got five inch movement, don't move them 15 inches, but move them 10, 11, uh, err on the side of caution as opposed to aggressive, but move them, especially if you're in battle situation where you got 20 boys in a blob or something like that and you don't have a moving tray. That's where some of the places you can like, you can actually do this. And if it comes back to bite you in the butt, by the way, that too is a thing. There's a reason why there's speed chess and then there's normal chess. A normal chess game between between two grandmasters can take like a day. Yeah. It, can, it can go on forever. And that's because if you were in a vacuum, if things weren't, you know, if you weren't timed, you would love to take longer on all these choices. And in, in, in fucking Warhammer, there's infinite choices. There's a lot. But you're yeah. not. You're splitting time at a tournament for 2.5 hours. And I felt so bad, but I had a couple opponents where I'm like, hey, man, you got to go faster. And he'd look at me and go, hey, I'm thinking. But it's the 25th minute of their turn, and we're at the bottom of five, and they're calling out. We have, you know, we've got 10 minutes to go or something. Uh, and I'm, you know, I have to do that. And there's nothing in Warhammer, by the way. We don't have official chess clocks. We don't have a judge at every table. So if that guy just robs me of a turn and then decides to be like, no, nah, man, you took just as long. I could end up having a huge issue, right? Uh, so what I do to, to counter that, of course, is to harass them the entire game. So it's very well established that I've been conscientious of time. The other way, uh, some of the other, and this, and before Pablo, I know you have a lot of um, ideas on this, but my last <laughs> one that I want to give out here, and this is like a weird controversial thing to say, and I've said this a lot, and some people really don't like that I say this, but I think it's fucking true. If you can't play an army fast, like if you're like, I, I've been collect. I've been collecting guards since 1994, and I just happen to, you know, each one's named individually. And you take <laughs> your list to a tournament, and you have 400 guardsmen, and you can't get through turn one. Do not bring that fucking list. Don't. And I don't want to hear like. And they're like, I'm a casual player. I. This is how I have fun. Don't tell me how to have fun. And I get that. But at a tournament, it's not just you. You're playing somebody else. And if you're having fun moving 400 guardsmen that you named individually and painted with flecks from, of skin from your dead grandfather, that's cool. But your opponent is having a shitty time. They're not getting to participate. They're not getting to play. And you're doing that to them. So if you're a slower player... Grab that big-ass tank. I can't remember which one of the 30 terrible Baneblade variants I'm talking about. <laughs> Code it with a... Yeah, sure, a Shadow Sword. <clears throat> Get a couple of whatevers, trim your army down, and practice it and play it. And if you're still a casual player who just wants to attend a tournament and you're having a tough time playing fast, then you got to go through the things Pablo's about to talk about. you got to go through things we did talk about. But also, don't argue so much. Trim down your own outside-of-the-game fluff like, if you're there casually and that's the first thing you're going to use as your, like, evidence for why you play slow, then do not argue with people. Don't slow down the game unnecessarily. Go ahead. T TLDR so, bringing a killer strong point. <clears throat> yes. There you go. So, uh, it, real quick to touch on that, because there's two points that I want to emphasize, not emphasize, but expand on um, that you said, Jeff. First off, casual players, um, and these aren't casual players, these are hobbyists, uh, non, not tournament primary 40k enthusiasts sure uh they they do have this kind of mentality where uh they don't they, they want you to respect the hobby they want you to 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 not break their immersion with these you know by by bringing unpainted models and and by bringing you, you know unbuilt or scratch built models or whatever right they don't want yeah. you to break their immersion but i feel like there's a little bit of hypocrisy when they do things like 
uh, not bring 600 models and not finish their game and, and take away from their uh, another player like you, a tournament player, right? And, and only go through one game round one. And this is where I think it's very important for people not to be dicks to each other and not... And, and to know that there's really another real person you're playing, and you don't want to ruin it for them. So, hobbyists, know your rules, know your army, play it in a decent amount of time, bring your rules, and prepare for that tournament so you don't ruin it for the other guys. Tournament players, bring painted armies, don't be a dick, be nice to each other, let let your opponent take back things within reason, that way the hobbyists can have fun. Well, I think this so here Simple. for me this all falls under a category of just be a decent human being because I I've, I've been exactly. I've been across the table from someone who Pablo would describe as a hobbyist, but let's just say that there's someone that, you know, they don't go to tournaments, they're there just to have fun, whatever. When they explain that to me, um I dial back my intensity. When they throughout the game are obviously taking a little bit longer to make choices, I'm not hounding them as much as long as they conduct themselves in that manner. So if they like, I played a guy, I played a guy at Broadside Bash who had this beautiful Blood Angel army in seventh edition, which means he brought a, a pile of shit and, and tried to play a game with it. And the first thing that happened was his demolisher had its weapon destroyed. Think about that for a second. Beautiful demolisher. Literally, the damage result was its weapon was destroyed. It only has one weapon. It's literally the fucking demolisher cannon. So this guy got kind of frustrated, and the rest of the game didn't go his way, and he ended up giving me like a thumb down because my army was – Broadside Bash is a weird scoring back then. My army was like too strong and, and, and too good, so it wasn't like a bad banner thumb down. It was just like a – I don't – this it, it was pseudo-comp. Anyways, the point is this guy came in and, and didn't have a good time because he hit a very competitive tournament player first round when really all he wanted to do is play his hobby and show it off. I could have done a better job of being more – um, compassionate and nice about that and being like, hey, I'm sorry, my army's geared towards winning games. You know, let's just have some fun, but this is probably going to be, you know, fairly explosive one way or the other. Um, if you go into a game with that kind of like social contract and you're willing to negotiate back and forth, it's pretty okay. But at, at this tournament, that, that, that expectation wasn't met for a lot of people. And that's why we heard a lot of stories of people being like, I'm pissed. I didn't finish my game. I'm really mad. Or, uh, Brad Chester in his match is like, yeah, man, if I would have had two more turns. And I saw this comment too, and this is this goes against uh, this was actually on the Frontline Gaming um, article, and I really like this. What if Alex Fennel the entire time to Tony's like, hey, man, your turn's taking too long. Can you please speed it up? Or if Brad Chester against Nick Nottavati is like, hey, dude, I really need to get to the bottom of six. I feel like I can win there if you, you know, you need to give me enough time to do that. If you say those kind of things. Nine times out of ten, your opponent is going to speed it up. They are going to try to play faster. Um, if they slow it down, if they're obviously not picking up, now you have grounds to actually ask a judge to adjudicate. Right, and that actually is a perfect segue into the second thing I wanted to expand on, which is uh, slow playing identifying etiquette, which is the only the best way I can describe it. Essentially, Jeff, <laughs> Jeff said uh, you know, he, he didn't want to feel like a dick for, for rushing his opponent. Well, well, Jeff, <clears throat> you're a very intense guy, but there are yep. ways to rush your opponent without coming off as a dick. Um, there are ways to to subtly increase the game, and th- this there's there's a bunch of different ways you can do this. this and this is going to go kind of half into ways to up your game and play faster, and also just just ways to to make the game go faster in a way. So it's a little bit of everything. But 
One thing you can do is always very, very easily, as you said it, you can just communicate with your opponent. Beginning of the game, I want to get through six turns. You, you know, uh, your army looks like it's got a really mean turn one. So, you know what? Take 30, take 30 minutes for your first turn. You know, like I, like I will help you as best as I can, but you know, why don't you make your other turns a little faster? And I, in turn, will take a quick turn one because my army doesn't really need a good turn one. I have more of a beta strike, right? So I'll take a quick turn one and then turn two, I'll take up a lot of points or a lot of time. And then you just kind of talk it out real quick. It takes like a minute tops. Um, and if you're a very reasonable guy, it usually works out. Like nine times out of ten, whenever I communicate to my opponent uh, a problem or something, they always, they always, like you know, they're they're always cool about it. Actually, I think I don't think I've ever had an opponent just say like, no, fuck you. Like whenever I've communicated to them in in, in a nice way, um, <clears throat> it might be because I'm me. I doubt that, but it, it's just. You should always communicate to your opponent no matter what. No matter what the problem is, you should always communicate to your opponent as best you can. The second thing you can do is you can you can not let your you can basically agree to not play the game. There there was a game I watched. I'm not going to name drop because these you will know who these people are. Uh, where the opponent was the guy who was just steamrolling his opponent. Right, he's steamrolling him. We're going to player A. Player A was steamrolling this guy, and they got to a point where where the player B was shooting a pretty much inconsequential number of shots at something, right? <clears throat> and player A knew that this would kill his unit. So player A said, you know what, I'm going to let you roll your dice so I don't ruin the game for you, because that that's a mentality that people have there uh, that I've gotten flack for online is I because I remove models when I know they're going to die. Like if you've got 10 combi plasma terminators shooting at five scouts, those scouts are dead. Every time. Not nine, nine times out of ten, every time. So so I pull the scouts, and I've gotten flack online saying, like, oh, you should let your opponent roll his dice and enjoy his game. Like, dude, this is a tournament. He's enjoying his game by being here. Um, and so that's what this person did, player A. They were like, I, I'm going to let you roll ten dice, or, or let him roll, like, half of those dice. And then he removed his models. And it was just kind of this weird, like, half-assed attempt to be fast and also be courteous to his opponent. Like, just don't do that. Just remove the models and, and explain to your opponent, hey, I'm not trying to take away your game, but I'm trying to make sure that there's enough time to preserve in the future for us to play. And that's it. So there's there's all there's all these little etiquette things um, that go to psychologically interacting with your opponent that you can do. Um, but I think those are the two big ones when it comes to slow playing. <clears throat> now, on to identifying where slow play is. So this is this is now the official main topic of slow playing and how to deal with it. The first way to deal with slow play, I think, is to address where slow play happens in a game. Um, we're going to immediately start off with, with the deployment. And the deployment takes forever. It does. It You know, alternating back and forth, thinking about where you're going to go, collecting all your units out. Um, I know Jeff does a really good job of, of putting his models away before game or before games conclude. So if a model dies, he'll put it on his display board, and then he only has a display board. He doesn't have a giant table war case, or it doesn't have a, a tray or, or a complex series of foam pieces that he puts all his models back into. He has one simple tray. He puts his models on there in a kind of reasonable, organized amount. You know, it's a little jumbled, but mm. you know he puts them all there, and he gets because he's already thinking about his next game and rushing over to the table for his next game. <clears throat> so you're moving, you know, when when you're going in the deployment zone and you're taking models out of whatever you, you transported them in, make sure that everything is smooth and you've practiced that. 
when I was accused of still playing with my Warp Spiders and Battle Company army uh, last year, I actually had a system, and my army would go in this one tray, and that's how it went. And I just I had a system, and I had actually practice for hours putting that army down when I'm deploying it turn one. I'd go like, okay, boom, 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 pull all my warp spiders out, boom, 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 put them all back. And I'd just practice that so I wouldn't slow play my opponent, because my army had a problem with slow playing, and also 7th edition last year, there was a big problem with slow playing as well. Um, so practice your deployments for for sure. That's I think I think that's immediately where it takes the longest. Also, there's other things. There's like uh, I think, I think, powers. Um... Go ahead. One one thing is uh, decision paralysis is big in the deployment phase, and I would I, I would suggest uh, something that I did that was helpful is you know um, just plan out your deployment. Like I, I would say most of the time you're going to deploy your army in a similar way. Uh, you're going to uh, adjust it for terrain features or whatever. But for the most part, you know you, you're 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 going to be deploying in a similar way. So you can you can actually have that preset. I printed out a bunch of the um, the deployment maps. And so I knew exactly where my guys were going, more or less, long before the LVO even started. Right. It, you shouldn't take up – the deployment phase should take up five minutes, ten minutes tops. You, when you, uh, Jeff, uh, Jeff made a, an analysis or, or to use an example of the chess grandmasters. In chess, the openings are the fastest parts. Right, you know, this grandmaster is running his Danish gambit. This grandmaster is running his Queen's Indian defense. They go through their first twenty variations of both openings, and now they get to the juicy part. The deployment zone should be your opening. You know, oh, I'm gonna bust out my king's open. My king's, I actually, that's Danish gambit, Queen's Indian defense, as far as I can go for now for chess. But uh, I'm gonna bust out this opening, my aggressive opening. My my, I'm gonna play more conservative with my conservative opening. Um, you know, just that should be automatic every time and, and you should really spend the time counting how many drops you have and knowing how many are going to go in reserve and where each models are going to go where know where your auras are where your auras want to be if you have like a gilliman uh maybe build a little a, a little tetris fort around your gilliman like what i did with my gilliman and his whirlwinds i had a, a tetris fort and when my opponent would go i just start building the fort so i already knew exactly how it how the space would look like so I could maximize the number of units in Gilliman's six inch bubble. And I didn't even have to think about it. I just boom, 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 boom. Everything should be automatic in the deployment zone. Everything. Uh, the deployment phase. Sorry. Jeff. No, I, I really like what you're saying. Um, <laughs> I think to really simplify it for a lot of people and what I do and what I have found to be very successful is just establish your intent at the beginning of the game. So we don't even need to make it like really scary and, formal there's not this intensity you just get up to the game be like hey man i really want to finish this game that's that's like that's actually like my line that's what i say i go hey i just want to finish this game and and they can take that how they want right so they can they that then gives them the opportunity to be like all right i'll play as fast as i can man and then it's this really nice kind of thing where the two of us are working together on that or they can be like i'm kind of a slow player but i'm here just to relax so like don't worry you got it but let's just play a game of warhammer and when they say that then I feel relaxed and I'm great and I'm not me, you know, or if they say, Hey, just please don't pressure me. I'm going to do the best I can. Those kind of, that, that kind of back and forth really establishes a nice game. I find nice. Yeah. The, those early game rituals. And, and here's the, the rough thing about tournaments. Um, <clears throat> those early game rituals can often go by the wayside when things go wrong at events. Maybe uh, the, the pairing something goes wrong with the pairings or maybe the right. to starts it late or whatever uh maybe you can't find your table there's there's 
infinite factors that can happen at tournaments, um, which is why it's very important that you're always aware. When you go to a tournament, you know, it's it's fun to chat with your buddies every now and then, but when I look at Jeff and the buddies he's talking to, it's like Sean Naden. I, I can guarantee you when Jeff, Sean Naden, and probably a bunch of other top players were all chatting, the minute the 10-minute mark hit, the minute the Best Coast Prangs went up, they were gone. Like, no, mm -hmm. goodbye, guys, good luck, have a great game, break a leg. None of that. They were business. They they took it seriously, and that's what that's the kind of mentality you need to have. Um, so remember when you when you dilly daddle and you take your time going to your table, you are cutting into your pregame ritual time, and then that in turn will affect the rest of the game and probably lead to a, an unfinished premature game. So uh, just keep all that in mind. There's there's tons of factors that go into slow playing, um, which is why I think people in general don't slow play intentionally. I think that ha that's a thing that happens in X. Yeah. Way more than 40k by by a lot, um, and, it, and so so moving on to identifying. Well, I want the... one more point. Oh, go I ahead. I just want to add one more point to this. For me personally, and I just I think this is more of a. I don't think we can talk too much about this, but I want to put it out there. I think the game, like a a, a good standard time would be like two hours and 45, or maybe three hours. I think this can this idea that eighth edition is so much faster that you it's like two and a half or even less we kind of talked about that in index um 40k i think that's wrong i really do i think um with the auras the game did get simplified i agree with that obviously but now we're talking about soups auras and a lot of interaction maybe even more so than in seventh where it was kind of like a unit and powers were what did it or um you know a decurion detachment type of thing had its own inherent buff but now there's overlapping auras, there's different interactions, there's very convoluted lists. I think the game actually takes longer. So it's something worth putting out there, I think, for discussion so, for other so, people. So we'll actually cover that um, later. There, I have a list of institutional solutions um, to slow play, and that's actually one of them. So things that mm -hmm. tournament organizers and us as a community and as institutions can do to fix slow play. Um, and these are actually all things that, that I asked the top eight players about. And, you know, a GW... Frankie, Reese, prominent members in the community, um, what kind of where their thought process were. So that that all goes into that. So we'll talk about that later. Um, I don't, th I I don't know about you guys, but in general, the movement phase for me, if you have templates, is usually a non-issue. Um, and in general, I don't think the movement phase. I don't think a lot of slow playing happens in the movement phase. But I might be wrong. I also don't run horde armies. Um, and I don't, when I play against horde armies, I usually don't pay attention to my opponent's movement. Because I usually tell them, like, oh, you're playing a Horde army, you probably play it real fast, right? And they're like, oh, yeah, I've been playing my Green Jade for 20 years, and I always finish all my games. I'm like, cool. And then, because if you give them that opportunity to prove how awesome they are at moving their models, they will then prove it to you. Um, but so what are some of the uh, what are some of the ideas that that you have for like on the institutional side? I think there's like an endless amount of of, of opportunity to you know for players to take accountability and and speed things up, but kind of like hinting at. What I was saying earlier about, you know, uh, playing ethically, you know, I think some of this, the onus needs to be on TOs. What do you, what were some of the ideas that you saw that we could do on the organizational side to speed up the game? Okay, so, so you want to get to the meat and potatoes. Uh, yeah, well, let's, let's get in there. Let, let me just say one more thing then. The, the other big thing where I think slow play happens, where I think we could work on it, and this is a point that all the top players, or most of the top players brought up, um, and that's the uh the assault phase or the intricacies of the assault phase are a huge uh, problem for why eighth edition is plays slower. I think it plays slower than seventh edition actually now, um because of how intricate the assault phase can get. 
right? So you're already playing all the phases of the game now in general, and now when you have this assault phase, you have a consolidate, you know, first a pile-in, and then a consolidate, and that part of the game is so crucial, right? So Brandon Grant was a, it did a perfect job explaining this to me. He's saying how he spends about 70% of his time in the assault phase measuring out perfectly, and that's where the games his games have been won and lost. So when you guys are planning the time and, and time management, plan for the assault phase if you're if you're building your army around the assault phase and even if you're not if you're being charged you know just just plan for the assault phase and plan for where your models are going to go and how they're going to block because that's really where the magic happens and where the chess happens um is that assault phase and those consolidates and i think you guys i know i for one have lost or end one games just based off of a good charge with a good consolidate and like a move block or something crazy happens right um, so that that's pretty much it. I think that's where where people should also focus um, their slow playing, where a lot of slow playing is happening. <clears throat> so institutional solutions to slow play. Uh, I have seven. There are a lot more, but these seven were by far the most mentioned, not even close. Uh, so the first one is dropping down in points. Um, the number that that got passed around was 1500 points that that seemed to be the typical number um a few people a few players played at 1500 points and it, the cons to 1500 points is that that you get a different a new meta right so, so maybe eldar do really well and also horde armies and spam armies tend maybe tend to do better at 1500 points because there's less counters to them i can't actually i can't actually speak for the cons cuz i've never played in a 1500 point game um have you either of you guys played 1500 points no it's i don't just, play it. it's just going to be less toys but yeah okay so so that's 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 one those one of the very commons it's i think it's more of a cop-out answer so they're like hey hey uh top eight player number three why what do you think should be done for slow playing well i think the point should be dropped down like, oh, okay yay and world peace yay um it's i don't think it's a, solu a real institutional solution though it's definitely one of the easiest um, I think even if we were to drop down to, and I was joking about this with a few players, even if we were to drop down to 500 points, I think games would still take forever, right? It, it would just be micromanaged to this one unit, and they would actually spend all this time on just these few units. Um, so I don't think I don't think it's something to be I don't think it's something to just be dismissed out of hand. But again, no, it's, it's going to be less toys. Not. So yeah, yeah, okay. So number two, uh, this is this is one that the community calls for, and I've actually come around on finally uh, chess clocks. And the implementation of chess it. clocks. So, essentially, obviously, you have this problem where who's going to pay for the chess clocks? Well, I think there are apps. I think I think everyone can spend like a dollar on a chess clock app uh, on their phone. Um, there are portable chargers. I think with technology and where we are now, um, I think chess clocks are probably something you're, you should see a lot more of. Uh, I don't think they should be on the TO to implement chess clocks. And then there's a small... know, at, at, at large events, uh, you know, where you know your, your budgets are in the probably six deep six figures. Uh, it's something that you might be able to institute over a period of time on on certain levels of tables. Maybe. Um, Jeff, have you ever played with a chess clock? No. I'm I'm literally ordering one on Amazon right now. I want to try it out. <laughs> yeah. But uh, yeah, all right. Chess clocks is a common common idea. But again, resisted for for some pretty similar standard ideas, which is who carries the cost. Which is funny to me. We're all playing with armies that cost in the thousands of dollars and on tables that probably run in the hundreds of dollars at least. So, yeah, I think it's a potential solution. Well, there, there's two there's two ways you can run chess clocks too, right? So there's chess clocks and there's uh, death clocks, which are 
uh, simple blitz chess. If you run out of time, your turn's done, um, which I definitely disagree with um, as just as a whole. Um, and then there's the the uh, the friendly chess clock. The hey man, you're running low on time, but don't worry because when you run out of time, it's over. Uh, I think chess clocks should be used on all tables, and I think people should use them to prove slow playing is a thing and prove cheating and slow playing. So if your opponent is aware of a chess clock, and if you use the necessary steps to make your opponent aware of the chess clock, I think that that is a valid argument for you to say at the end of the round, if your opponent wins, and it's clear that they're going to win if the game ends prematurely, that your opponent slow played you. And then, boom. At a, at a, at a minimum, I think it's important to at least be open to the idea of practicing with one, so that, to Jeff's point, you can realize that you're a slow player. Uh, yeah. Well, and, uh, number chess clocks beating to death out there. What, what else? What we got? Number three? <laughs> um, th- this is kind of an interesting one. Uh, basically, it's it's non-action that slow playing isn't an issue. Um, it, I got the gist of it, but players policing themselves, uh, and that that goes back to everything we say. That's that's something that's basically tournaments should adopt the idea of play players police yourselves. Like Wild West, do whatever you want. Um, it's not a very popular opinion. Not a lot of people you know, mentioned it, but I think enough higher end people kind of said it enough to say that maybe, maybe we're not going to get, maybe some of the tournaments aren't going to do anything about slow playing. Um, and I think there's something to be said about listening to this podcast. And as Jeff said, we're all slow players. And I think we can all take the time to, if we all take the time to not slow play in a perfect world, I think we can get rid of slow playing. Honestly, I don't think there is a, I don't think we need an institutional answer. This, However, this, this that's is a vacuum. The, that's a perfect world. Go ahead. Yeah, that's that's also the solution we've been trying uh, since I entered the game. Uh, clearly not working. Clearly, clearly not working. Um, the next one is uh, surprisingly not mentioned by any of the players, but a lot of the TOs game losses. Um, it, there's there's all sorts of things you can do uh, with incent- negative insensitives uh, game losses. I, I think Australia does game loss. A few places in Australia do game losses. Um, I don't know about Canada. I know it's not a U.S. thing, in t- typically in general. Capital um, City Bloodbath in Ottawa, it's uh, it's not a finish the game, it's a minimum turns. It's, <laughs> so you have to get a minimum of, uh, I think, turn four. Um, yep. I, I, I will say that that, in my experience, does get people hustling. Um, you know, there's a lot of, again, all, all this stuff has blowback, right? So the, the, the negative comments that would be on that is that, well, then people are just going to say they got to turn four or or people, you know, whatever. But I don't know. I feel I feel like anything you can do to put pressure on people to 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 move faster and go faster, something like that uh, will will help. Although, again, the criticism is going to be that it's potentially gameable. What do you Agreed. think? Yeah, uh, there's I def- think part of it's just getting the word out, to be honest with you. I I. I don't feel like uh, anyone's purposely slow playing, like you said earlier, and I agree with all the things you're talking about that can happen, institutional or otherwise, but I feel like if people just show up with the mindset of like, all right, I'm here to play, but I'm going to play fast because I want my other my opponent to have a good time, it'll change. So just get the word out. Yeah. yeah. <clears throat> there, there's more elegant uh, ways to handle it than game losses. Uh, I just want to give you guys a little hint. Frontline Gaming is looking at a few of these institutional options don't know if any of them going to get taken in place, um, but th- there are there are definitely ways to look at it um, more than just what we're talking about. And mm-hmm. game losses in particular, I, just one I came up with off the top of my head was, what if we just, in the ITC, made it so 
if you didn't finish turn three, you just lost 100 points off your win. So now you're at 900 points instead of that full 1,000. So you still have most of a win, but um, if you start to not finish games, you'll start. It'll basically a win will turn into a draw. Um, and it can mess with math a little. Um, there's a lot of interesting things you can do with it. So the next thing is uh, time rubrics is basically what I called them. And that's essentially giving your opponent's player pack or giving your players player packets, saying turn one should be this long, turn two should be this long, turn three should be this long, and then having the players write them down, uh, write their times down. So not kind of not kind of like a chess block, but um, instead you just write down. So you would go turn one end ended 23 minutes in uh, turn. Yeah, that'd be actually super easy to institute right because you right score away. end of right. turn and and on your turn in ITC that'd be really easy just to add a column uh, on the score sheet. I I think that might be a good way. And also again, just, I think Jeff's <laughs> gonna keep repeating his point that you just got to <laughs> tell people to play faster. Yeah, that's a great way to tell people to play faster. Put it right on the pack. Yeah, and that's actually what I was just about to say too is is something like that, just something to remind people to play faster. You know, even if you just put in yeah. bold like play faster, also tournament organizers if you want to put something like listen to chapter tactics 54, you know, or anything like that. Um just a reminder. Uh it, that would be what time rubrics do and I think that's a pretty cool solution. So if you're TO, you want to put that on your player packets. Uh, the next one is increasing the time in the rounds. I know Adepticon is running two-hour and 45-minute rounds. I mm-hmm. don't know if those extra 15 minutes will help. And unfortunately, Adepticon is four rounds in one day, and then another four rounds in another day. Um, so they don't have much wiggle room in terms of increasing time for rounds even more. Um, so I don't know how feasible increasing the time in rounds would be for tournaments. Um, but uh, if you guys were... If time were to increase, Jeff, do you think that's something that you'd be into, or are you just gonna yes. stick with your stance? So increase in time. If I had to determine they had three-hour rounds, I'd be very happy. I mean, yeah. I mean, ETC round, ETC rounds. I mean, given that's a tournament, they do over four days, as three days. Uh, ETC rounds are four hours each. Also, teams that are, um, you know, carded or, or deemed to be playing too slowly are put on chess clocks. So it's not the whole tournament that's on chess clocks. It's identified players. Hmm. But you need referees that can spot that. Right, right. Um, so or, or tournament uh, officials who are, you know, able to, able to you know, receive the feedback and, and put someone on a clock. Right. Uh, that's also what happens in golf, by the way. Okay, interesting. <laughs> uh, another thing about increasing the time in rounds, um, there's a bit of a, a stigma towards longer rounds that I, I think – in large part is now being taken away and that's that people don't want to spend super long time playing tournaments well i played who are these people i don't know i played in magic tournaments like i played from like 8 a.m to 1 a.m right playing at tournaments and for magic or for anything really um and i love it that's but when i go to when i travel to like the las vegas open for example uh, maybe not the lvo because you want to enjoy vegas but even even then lvo because vegas is never really sleeps so I, I can I can gamble and go to the strippers in Toronto. I can't go to a 500 person tournament. You know what I that's mean? That's true. Like so, like that's a good point. I I, I I travel to go to the tournament, and I think TO should be fully uh you know uh fully okay with stretch out those round times. People are there to play. Yeah. They'd rather get their games in. Yeah. I don't think I don't I don't know where I don't honestly the the resistance to having a longer day starting earlier. Uh, I don't I I don't know where it comes from. It's not from me. Uh, I would I don't pull think it's from you guys. Just pull the ITC because there hasn't been one on that. That's a good pull. Wow, right. There hasn't been a pull in a long time. That's a good one to pull on. What? Yeah. Really? Yeah. I haven't noticed at all. Yeah. So 
So, All right. So yeah. where are we in the in the, in the top seven? Um, and then finally, uh, offering incentives for finishing rounds. Uh, good good old incentives. Positive reinforcement. Um, possibly even a fastest player award or something. Um, adding a whole new level. Uh, th- this one is a little more fringe. Uh, I I think that giving people incentives for finishing games is a good thing. Um, I don't know how it would be implemented at all. I can't I can't possibly think of a a feasible way to implement it. I think um, if I could uh, just say like, you know, you, you touched on it with the score sheet idea, which actually I think is a really good one. I hope people hear that along with dice apps. Thank you. Um, but the other one is uh, is is. On that one, in BCP, like right now, we don't know how far the average game is getting. You know, we have a, a great tool, so I, I think it'd be great. I know in the league that uh, Reese talks about, they've been tracking what how far games are going. Uh, leagues aren't good because you kind of have an open night. I don't know if you guys are timing them, whatever. Um, but even in BCP, if it was what round did you get to and what is your score, um, then, I mean, the TOs could scan the sheet and see where are the, where are the real slow players. Um, you know, so I don't know that that would probably be my first stop either on the score sheet. You have to say what, what turn you got to, um, which in itself will probably help you speed up because you don't want to be showing that you got to turn two every one of your games, uh, and, and to be able to track it in BCP, you'll get data. You'll be able to see, you know, this point was 1500 point. This, this tournament was 1500 points. It was 2000 points. It was three hours. It was two and a half hours. What impact has that had on, on, uh, on, on uh, games finishing, so that's probably the easiest way to do that. Mm. The, I have a I have a problem with the incentives going both ways, negative and positive, um, just because I feel like people will start falsifying their their points and their you know. Um, just make them report. Just make them report it. I make know, them log the their thing. time. Here's the thing. I'm I'm just gonna cut it off right now. Like there will always be to all of these. There's always something like, well, people will just cheat that. People will game that. People won't do that. That's true. All of them. All of them. Not a single one is bulletproof. That's true. Absolutely. Except for, except for time Rubik's, Jeff, because the TOs aren't going to take that seriously. It's just to remind the players. You're right. That's mm. the one, Pablo. That's I agree. <laughs> um, but th- anyway, so those are those are uh, institutional solutions to slow play that that players and tournaments, uh, at least the TOs and the players that I talked to, um, who I, tr- I tried to get a wide selection of of community leaders. Um, what just in general what they thought like that that's what's on the radar um, obviously there are more uh, there are tons of solutions to slow play it's endless but I think I, I think I'm in the opinion with Jeff here that I think it, it just comes down to player awareness and and time management and being better one, one thing that the LVO uh, did well um, and could probably do even more of and will help people who are trying to hurry the game along is they called out the times so I, I, I think they gave maybe three call outs uh, around you know, if if you're supposed to be doing, you know, say 20 minutes, 30 minutes uh, a turn, then you should be calling out times every 20, 30 minutes because that'll also anything, you know, anything that's going to spur people. Uh, it shouldn't it shouldn't be all on, you know, a strong personality to drive a game forward. Uh, you got to you got to set your environment up to give that urgency. Um, so. So anyway, the LVO, I thought, did a good job of that. And that that's something you don't. Oh, in fact, you rarely see at events um, aside from a, like a 30 minute call. That's actually an interesting point that you bring up, Val, because I think TOs that do or tournaments that do a really good job of of making it easy for their players to finish their games, like, like you said, with the not just with the round calling and the time calling, but also with the make sure the rounds start on time. By the way, the BCP player app, 
helps a lot with that, with your round starting on time. You don't have to print papers out. You don't have to run a judge over to the end of the wall and tape listings and have everyone freak out and wonder where they are or whatever. BCP yeah, app, BCP basically adds 10 minutes to each round. Absolutely. So <clears throat> it's it, a lot of this is on the TOs, and I don't I, I don't want to call that I don't want to put TOs on blast. However, if you are a TO who who makes uh, priority your opponent or your player's priority a uh, time priority, make your player's time management a priority and make it easier for your players, and you showcase that. I will talk about you on Chapter Tactics. Uh, I know there were a couple last year who who I think the Iron Halo was one. Jason was very proud of that and that he uh, he made his players he made it so easier for his players to finish all their games. And a lot of people die in Halo finish their games. I know I didn't. One game was threatening to go to turn four against a guard player, and I told him, "Hey, could you? Do you think we could speed this up? I really want to finish this game." And he was like, "Are you telling me how to play my game? Do you want to roll your dice free?" And I was like, "No, man. I just want us both to finish this game and have a great time." And he was like, "Well, oh, all right. That sounds pretty good." That was it. Yeah. So <clears throat> Jeff, Jeff, Jeff put players on blast. I'm gonna put TOs on blast. I Uh-oh. think. I, I think uh, well. Look at the look at the uh, the, the the LVO pack. I, I didn't see anything about playing fast. No. You, know, you know you know what I'm saying. Like they, there there were a few small things that were done to increase pace of play. There's a strong reluctance, and I think speaking again to other things that have been talked about today, this game's getting popular now. We don't be, have to be so afraid of turning people off. They want to be at the tournament. They want to be playing. We don't have to cater to the the, the guy who's like hitting the bong in the car anymore. We can cater the players who are flying across the country to play in the event. So, you know, yes, make things urgent. You know, stretch out the round time. Start at 9, uh, end at 8. You know, whatever it's got to be. Um, you know, TO should, I think, take a leap of faith that the players want to play now. People are super into it. Let's give it. Let's give the best tournament experience possible, and I think that is going to have to start being a focus on finishing games. And players can do something. But I think TOs set up the environment. They're the ones who have the most amount of influence and ability to get people moving faster. Well said. All right, guys. This is, I think this is pretty much it. That we've beaten this topic to death. Jeff, is there any final words you want to add? Um. Yeah, the only thing I kind of forgot to add, as far as I can remember, for my diatribes was, especially with the win the right way, I want to be the first to say um, that that's been a learning experience for me. I, I've definitely bullshitted people and won in ways that later when I kind of looked back on it, I didn't feel good about it. I felt like I out-argued them or pulled a gotcha hammer on them. And I think moving forward, that's happening a lot less and I'm getting better about it and I feel better about it. I feel cleaner. I feel I feel like when I win, I earn that win. So I'm kind of that guy that I'm not speaking down on anybody i'm speaking eye to eye with people saying this has been my journey i i know it to be true and i talk socially with a lot of the you know my fellow competitors and uh i just feel very strongly that i feel like if people are conscientious of these concepts and work to be a decent person that that plays as fast as they can you're going to have a great time at warhammer competitions amen amen all right guys thanks for sticking around this long for for I think what was a really, really good segment. I think we got into a lot of really good topics, um, and I think you guys are going to really enjoy the next segment right after this commercial break. See you then. Hello, everyone. Are you looking for a 40K event to round out your winter season? Look no further than the Barry Bash. Located in Barry, Ontario, Canada, and only 45 minutes north of Toronto, the Barry Bash is a good event 
for you and your friends to attend. If you plan on being in Canada for doing something other than sightseeing some moose and drinking maple syrup, it's on Saturday and Sunday, February 24th through the 25th. It's being hosted by the Eternal Warriors Club, Canhammer, and Scarry from Scardcast. Should be a great event, and hopefully they will see you there. All right, everyone, we're back with some tournament coverage. We have two very large events to go over. We obviously have the Las Vegas Open, which we talked about for a very long time before the break. And we're also going to talk about CanCon, the a big Australian event that they actually synced so that it happens with the Las Vegas Open. So they announced the ITC Australian champion, as well as the champion, the teams, the ITC teams for Australia. So it's really cool. It's good that, that they give an event as large as large as some of the largest events in the world for the people in Australia who can't make it to the Las Vegas Open and from what it looked like it looked like a large big time prime time event that would be a lot of fun to attend so if you're in Australia or if you if you don't want to go to Las Vegas maybe you're sick of Las Vegas and you want to go somewhere drier hotter with meaner animals then go to Australia check it out uh, or just you know if you're in Australia and you are thinking about getting into the 40k scene, CanCon, I imagine, is a great tournament to start. And I consistently hear positive reviews from people who made the Las Vegas Open or Nova or Adepticon or enter a big, big brand name event here. Uh, when that's their first event, they usually love it and they jump headfirst into it. And I've only ever heard positive reviews. So if you're in Australia, go to CanCon, check that out. Speaking of attending tournaments... You guys just listened to a commercial for the Barry Bash up in Ontario, Canada. I just wanted to ask you guys real quick before we get going, what do you guys think about the new commercial setup? Do you guys like it? Do you guys not like it? Uh, obviously, there's going to be differences in, not quality, but differences in styles between the commercials. You know, if if I record the commercial, it's going to be a little different than if they send me a pre-made commercial. So... Just let me know what you guys think, if you guys don't like it, if you guys do like it. I'm trying to put them in a way so that they don't really interrupt the flow of the podcast, and you guys have a chance to pause, go use the restroom, do your thing, uh, without the commercial just kind of popping out there. So, anyways, I think it spaces out the podcast pretty well, but I just wanted to know what you guys thought, now that we've had, I think this is going to be the fifth episode with commercials in it. Anyways, on to CanCon. So this information I got from the TOs of CanCon the people who ran the 40k event specifically as well as the entire convention. So I just asked them their their general thoughts and and uh kind of some cool things like what happened at the event, any interesting things to note on top of the faction breakdowns and I also pulled some lists from the Best Coast Pairings app that uh, I thought would be worth noting or worth pointing out. It, in general before we go into these stats, it, it basically the faction breakdowns almost mirror the Las Vegas Open with a few small, minor variations. So if you're listening to this and you're wondering what the meta will be like post-LVO, this is a good place to start. I feel like this is now where the meta is at with Eldar. Obviously, the big April FAQ that GW pulled out will shake this up a lot, but I think instead of shaking it up a lot, I think it'll shake up lists and not necessarily factions. So you'll still see... Eldar lists, but you won't see the specific Eldar lists that you you know that you see dominating the top tables at the Las Vegas Open. So, without further ado, CanCon, 
was the result of a huge community effort. Multiple clubs brought different pieces of terrain, gaining mats, and hyped up the event to make it ultra successful. This is the biggest one they've had yet. And it it really goes to show you what happens if a community gets behind one ultra event and makes it happen. And the CanCon is was really that. It's they had vendors, they had multiple events, uh, they were on Best Coast pairings. They they from what I heard went very smoothly, and, and they provided a lot a, a big scene, a big uh, experience for players who want to enjoy the hobby. And it looked like a blast. I'm very very proud of the people who ran it and I'm very happy for all of you who attended. I think I can't wait to see how it evolves in the future, especially if they keep this Las Vegas Open CanCon happening at the same time deal. That would be incredible, right? Cuz then we could have shoutcasters, you know, co-hosting and talking to each other. You could go, "Well, now down, transferring to our guys down under to ask how round 2 is going or whatever." Obviously, they're on a different time zone, so it'd be a little a little weirder to coordinate, but if we can coordinate like uh, our round six to their round one or something, I think that'd be pretty cool. So, uh, or we can just we can just stream their the CanCon on the Las Vegas Open stream, and we can just have 24 hours of streams going for for an entire week, right, or an entire weekend. So when we all go to sleep at the LVO, CanCon starts happening. And then that stream starts going on. It's like, whoa, just endless amounts of content for, for people from all over the world so that they can view and that they don't have these long periods of time when they're sitting at home doing nothing, waiting for the Americans to wake up in Vegas. So it's really cool. The possibilities are endless. The The top table was played by um, Martino, uh, Mr. Martino, and Simon... Gaj Kovic. I'm, I hope I got your last name correct, Simon. But there was Eldar. It was an Eldar and Tyranid top table, and the Tyranids did win, which which is really interesting because even though Simon won, uh, Martino still won the entire event. So he, there were four players that ended up tying for first place at seven and one. They played eight rounds. There was no top eight single elimination bracket. It was just everyone plays eight rounds. The person at the end with the best score slash best battle points wins everything. So someone could have conceivably gone 8-0 and won the entire thing, but that wasn't the case. So Martino won on battle points. The four players who tied, the four factions who were tied for first place were Eldar, uh, Guard, and two Tyranid players. So, it kind of an interesting spread. No Chaos players, which is which is kind of kind of weird, but as you guys see when I break down the factions, there's not a lot of Chaos players in Australia. Uh, I, I don't know, I don't know what it is. Maybe they just don't like chaos down there. Maybe they're just tired of seeing all these giant monsters with mana bars attacking them from from holes in the ground or oceans. Or, I don't know. Australia's terrifying. I can't even I can't even fathom it. So I imagine they're probably sick of it. So they just they want to run happy, are awesome armies like Tyranids. I don't know. I, I can't I can't figure that out. But anyways, uh, Jeremy Martino, Lee Abbey. Simon Gajkovic and Jason Beasley, congratulations for all going 7-1. and one. Some uh, other interesting things that happened about the event. Uh, there was a lot of feedback uh, at the tournament from people saying that it was very, very competitive. Um, with some people even saying that maybe it was too competitive. But I would argue that if it's the it's the Australian champs. It's the 40k champs. It's the big top dog tournament in Australia. 
you're going to expect it to be very competitive. I would expect people to bring their A game, not only their A game with their lists and and their knowledge, but also A game with their paints with their paints too. So with their painted army. So I imagine people brought their A game. I, I I'd want it to be very competitive. This isn't a casual RTT. So that's good that it was a very competitive tournament. And just judging from the lists as you're going through the BCP app and looking at them, the lists are all very competitive. They they are optimized. There, there's a few head scratchers in there, especially as you get to the lower tables. But in general, the lists all make sense, and the lists look like they were designed with a purpose in mind and with competitive, uh, competitive winning in mind as well. So that's good. Uh, there was a really funny thing that happened. Uh, Mr. James Seymour won a game. Uh, his opponent went first, and his opponent was running Cryptus Assault Claws with Berserkers, and James killed his opponent's entire army in Overwatch turn one. So his opponent took the top of the turn, turn one. James laid out his army, and his opponent, I imagine, charged into everyone and got Overwatch shot off the table, and James won on the top of turn one. So that's... That's I think that's really really hilarious. Uh, for those of you who are wondering, James is running four guard super heavy tanks. Uh, he was running uh, two bane blades and two shadow swords, and that was his list. So his Overwatch can be extremely devastating. Um, he didn't even he probably didn't even outflank any of them. He just started them all on the board and said, "Hey, uh, come at me, bro!" And he didn't, and his opponent lost. So that, that I think that's pretty funny. Uh, there was also one other problem at the CanCon, which which isn't even really it's a problem, and we addressed it before the commercial break to death. So I won't I won't go over into it too much. Uh, but there was also some problems of slow play at CanCon as well as at the Las Vegas Open. So you, you know over the weekend you had 600 plus players playing 40k, and when we if we do ever manage to get the numbers, I, I imagine a a too high of a percentage did not finish their games, did not go to round six. And I believe, I'm not sure if, uh, I'm not sure if CanCon comps, I know some places in Australia, I know some tournaments do comp slow play, and it's definitely been talked about down there for sure. So I don't know if CanCon comped it so that they punished you for slow play. Um, If they did, a lot of people got punished. Um, And if they didn't, I'm sure they, I'm sure they probably wish they did. So it, it's just it's interesting to see that that as the game is evolving, as more stratagems are coming out, more people are getting really seriously. Because I I feel like more people are taking competitive 40k seriously as Eighth Edition keeps progressing because of the amount of of options that armies get and the cool factor. And, and there's a lot of just there's a lot more stuff. It, it's not bloated like Seventh Edition. It's a different kind of bloat. It, it's it's more quality bloat than Seventh Edition's bloat, where it's just weird random supplements that made no sense to everything you just rules bloat nothing made sense uh you know you had you had to have five or six different codexes now um now you you know you can really have one or two codexes for your army there's no supplements and there's no crazy rules bloat weird things that you'd expect to see so it's a different kind of bloat in that there's a lot of a lot more stuff in eighth edition but it's not random weird supplement stuff. It's it's all stuff that's kind of similar and that that's spread across all the factions, not just a few factions like primarily Imperium and Chaos. So slow play. There was some at CanCon. Uh, I know I know that the TOs were taking deliberate steps at the event to combat slow play. Um, they didn't mention how, 
but I imagine it was something similar to maybe what the Las Vegas Open did in telling people, call, calling out round times, et cetera, et cetera. If, if you don't run an event like CanCon and and not know what to do if people are slow playing, right? So I imagine they were very experienced TOs and they have their own way to deal with slow playing. So some interesting lists that I want to point out before we get to the faction breakdown. We had Simon Gajkovic. I mentioned him earlier. He was running a, a really cool tiered list. Uh, it, it had a lot of bio, a lot of biovores, a lot of single unit biovores, and it was really meant. It looked like he meant to, wanted to cover the board with spore mines. And he also had uh, roaming close combat characters in pure strange gene sealers, or uh, not pure strange gene sealers, brood lords, and also four Molochs. And uh, I think he had a hive tyrant or a flyrant in there as well. So it was a very a very board control focused Tyranid army. Um, a lot of mortal, a ton of mortal wounds dealing, and uh, he obviously did really well. Went seven and one. He beat the eventual winner of the uh, the, the game on the final table. And Simon's also a really good player. He's been around a while. I consistently see him in tournaments. So uh, Simon, very interesting Tyranid list. You didn't bring the usual Hive Guard plus Genesis plus Swarm Lord stuff that you see a lot of a lot of Tyranid lists. Oh, you did Stipan, Biovores, so. It's a little bit of a mark against you, but you did spam a lot of them. Uh, Jamie Kelly, I wanted to give you a shout out for running five Tyrant Guard to protect his Swarm Lord and going six one and one. Uh, six one and one essentially means you were one point away from going seven and one because you did draw a game. So if you had just gotten one more point somewhere in that draw anywhere, you would be seven and one, and maybe you would have won. Who knows? So Jamie, I wanted to give you a shout out for running Tyranids and running five Tyrant Guard. You probably could have been okay with two Tyrant Guard. Uh, I'd like to know how often your Swarm Lord died, how many Tyrant Guard you lost. That's very interesting. Tim Neal, uh, you technically, this was an Imperium list, uh, but the reason why I wanted to I wanted to give it a shout out was because he listed his list as a Custodes list. So as soon as I saw it, I immediately thought, oh, this guy went 5-1-2 with Custodes. I need to check this out. Uh, turns out it was actually Imperium list. Uh, you couldn't have the Custodes keyword because those HQ choices aren't out yet. Uh, but he had Gilliman, two Custodes Guard units who are the basic generic troops, a Land Raider, a couple of Primaris Librarians, some Primaris Psychers, and it was just a, a really weird elite army. I think he had an Assassin in there or two, an Assassin or two in there. It was a really, really interesting army. And the fact that he went five wins, one loss, and two ties means he was two points away from going seven and one with, with I don't want to say crap, but with with interesting stuff so a head scratcher list a real head scratcher list um so tim i wanted to give you a shout out because that is very very difficult to do and the fact that you were so close to seven and one with just a couple draw draws go, going against your favor towards the end of the tournament mind you so these are not against bad players they're against good players um good job tim tim you know, i wanted to give you a shout out i also wanted to give a shout out to matt morosoli who went six and two with sisters uh, he had uh, an interesting sister list. He had Dominion Squads and Repressors, which is fairly standard in sisters lists, but he spammed the crap out of them and then gave them all Stormbolters. So he had a lot of Daka, a lot of Heavy Flamers, and then he brought a, a Shadow Sword, and that's it. So he had his Daka, his Horde Clearing, and then his Shadow Sword, um, which I imagine was very hard to get to, especially after his sister's out or, uh, scout moved up to push back his opponents even further. I imagine the Shadow Sword was very hard to deal with, and the Shadow Sword just deleted things that the sisters could not handle. And even if it's something as simple as a Rhino. So that was a very interesting sisters list. And then finally, Lee Abbey, who made the top four. He had uh, a guard list. He was the one guard player who made the top four that I mentioned. 
and he had a, a, a Tempestus Scions list. So normally you you would you know six months ago if you had told me that I would have been like eh whatever every guard player is running Tempestus Scions. However, he's running Tempestus Scions post chapter approved, which means they are nerfed. They are increased in points, and he had 90, like, I'd say, like, 90% of his army was Tempesta Scions with Tempesta Primes, no vehicles, so so none of the cool Daka t- uh, Toroxes or anything like that. He had all Tempesta Prime models uh, with various special weapons and stuff. It was very interesting, and he also said had some Ogren bodyguards in there, too, so had a little bit of a beat stick unit. It was just an interesting guard list. It's not the kind of guard list you would see very often, um, and... I imagine he just put the right tools in the right place when he needed to, and then just played like a normal guard list with a ton of bodies on the board. So, very interesting. Lee Abbey, congratulations for making the top four and going seven and one. The faction breakdown broke down as such. Eldar variants, so that I'm including Anari, Eldari, uh, the, uh, the Eldar version, not Drukhari, uh, shoot. I don't, I don't play. I, I hate that GW switched the names around all, of all of them. So it's, it's like Drukhari, the Dark Eldar. The Eldar version of Drukhari, whatever the new name of the Eldar is. Uh, those Eldar, Inari, and then Alitok, or any weird Ulthway, any weird craft worlds. So Eldar variants, there were 17, making up 13%. That was the highest represented faction at CanCon. Followed by Space Marines with 15 players. This this is a uh, vanilla Space Marines, so Raven Guard, Ultramarines, Salamanders, Adeptes, Astartes. They made up uh, 11% of the meta. Chaos Space Marines at 12 at 9%. Tyranids with 11. Guard with 9. Imperium or Imperial Soup with 7. Five Necron players, five Admech players, four Demon players, four Dark Eldar players, four Knight players, and that's Renegades and Imperial Knight players. Three Tau, three Orcs, three Blood Angels. Uh, and then two Dark Angels, two Chaos Demon, two Chaos Super Armies, which actually that's very interesting that there were just two Chaos keyword armies at CanCon, which is such a low percentage, especially when you compare it to LVO, which we'll be talking about after I finish all this. Uh, and then two Space Wolves players, one Gene Circle player, and one Grey Knight player. So overall, especially compared to last year, when you when we broke down the factions last year for the Las Vegas Open. I think last year, there 20% of the players were Space Marine players. Those are almost all Battle Company. Uh, and I'd imagine that number would be a lot higher if, if the Imperium faction had existed back then. So so there were 20... There were 20% last year, 20% Space Marine players. I think it was somewhere of like 30... Almost 30% Eldar. It was so bad. It was... I think it was like one in every three players that you played was an Eldar player last edition for the Las Vegas Open. And it got so bad that that was the first time Eldar had actually beaten Space Marines in popularity in a very long time in all the other tournaments in ITC. So uh, Eldar have dropped down a little bit in terms of percentage and representation, um, but they're still the most used faction, though just barely. Uh, Tyranids rising up is cool, uh, especially compared to last year where Tyranids were non-existent. Uh, Guard are really cool, rising up there as well. Um, And there were six Sisters players. That doesn't sound like a lot, but when we get to the LVO, and just compare how many Sisters players were at the LVO versus how many people were registered, it was just mind-boggling how many Sisters players were at the, at the CanCon. And that was actually one of the things the TOs told me about. They were like, oh yeah, we had a lot, we had good Sisters representation. And when I saw six, I was like, meh, that's, that's okay. Um, but when you compare all of the other big tournaments, you know, especially in terms of breakdowns, that that's actually a, a good 
amount of sisters. You know, they were the seventh most represented faction. So that that's not that's rare. That's not not very common with sisters. So, <coughs> excuse me. So that that's cool. The good representation of sisters at CanCon. Ultimately, there were 128 players paired up round one at CanCon, ready to go, which is really good. That's a good good showing. And I'm pulling that number from the Best Coast Pairings Player app, so if you're wondering where I pulled that number, that's where I got it. Uh, I basically just counted the number of tables that were paired, uh, looked for any drops or buys, which I didn't see any, and then just doubled the number. So 64 times 2. So 128. So 128 players were paired round 1. So many people started off. That's a, a really solid event. That puts them at, like, the fifth largest event for the ITC season because if you count the ITC season as uh, Las Vegas Open to last year's the previous year's Las Vegas Open to the day after the previous year's Las Vegas Open uh, that's the ITC season so this season 128 players puts them like right around Warzone Atlanta over the Iron Halo which was one of the larger ones um, and then just under just under the BAO and uh, obviously SoCal Open Adapticon all the really big ones so Congratulations, guys. That's a huge event. That is a big deal, and I only see it improving and growing. Hopefully, you guys will give us your best Australian players um, so that the best Australian players aren't all competing at CanCon. Uh, maybe give us a little bit of love there. Although, I, I wonder if if the L if, if Australian players at the LVO had gone to CanCon, I wonder if that would have maybe skewed your numbers or maybe uh, changed your top four breakdown or your top player breakdown. Or maybe if someone would have gone 8-0. No. Uh, I'm interested. If there's any players from Australia who want to email me that data, just, just out of curiosity, what players made the LVO, uh, which players from Australia made the LVO, and uh, how well did they do at the LVO versus how well do you think they would have done at CanCon. That's very, very interesting. Um, because I know if you have uh, a lot, a contingent of strong players leave your community and go to another tournament, they usually make a splash in that tournament. For the most part, but the Las Vegas Open is a bigger event than the average tournament you'll see, so just just interesting. Overall, there were 34% Xenos representation, 39% Imperium representation, and 27% Chaos representation. So not a lot of Chaos players, um, and only 12 Chaos Space Marine players in in Australia. Moving on to the Las Vegas Open, in total there were 473 players paired and registered day one. Uh, that's not 512. Uh, that's significantly more than last year. That's almost one Iron Halo more uh, players than last year's. Um, and it's a lot of terrain, a lot of hard work. And I'm very happy to say that it was an overall success. Even in, in not in terms of monetary uh, and community success, but also uh, just showing where the state is, where the state of the game is now. As we look at the faction breakdowns, they, like I said before, they mirror CanCons in that there are 66 Eldar variant players who played at the Las Vegas Open. That's a lot. That's significantly more than CanCons. However, we hit 473 players, whereas CanCon hit 128. So we, you know, we're all little, little under four times more than CanCon. So you have to double the number, or you have to quadruple the numbers. Um, so Eldar variants made up 13% of the factions at the Las Vegas Open, so you're 13% likely to run into an Eldar player. Uh, Space Marine players, 11%, same exact as CanCon percentage-wise. There were 
51 Chaos Space Marine players, which is, makes up 10%, which is just a little bit over CanCon's, but still about the same. Uh, 10% Guard players, which is a bit over CanCon's, and then 8.2% uh, Tyranid players, or 39 Tyranid players, as opposed to 11. Um, you get the idea. So Tyranids, Guard, Chaos Space Marines, Space Marines, Eldar, the top five most used armies, all... All, uh, with the exception of Guard and Tyranids who are switched, all have pretty much equal percentage representation between CanCon and the Las Vegas Open. So there's your meta. Uh, those five factions make up pretty much 50% of the factions you'll run into at large events. So you'll see Eldar variants, you'll see Space Marines, you'll see Chaos Space Marines, you'll see Guard and you'll see Tyranids. Every time, without fail, hands down 50%. And then the other 50% is random other stuff. Um, which I think is really cool, because um, previous in previous editions, especially last year, if you want to compare last year, you you were guaranteed to see a Death Star player, uh, you were guaranteed to see a Battle Company player, and you were pretty much guaranteed to run into a 1.5 Eldar players. So every other player ran into two Eldar players, um, and then the extra two rounds if you're playing a six round game, uh, the extra two rounds were between all the other factions. Um, or if you got really unlucky, another Eldar Space Marine player. So it was rough in terms of diversity. Um, so it's obviously a lot more diverse now in 8th edition, uh, as these numbers prove. <clears throat> One thing to note, there were 37 Chaos players registered at the Las Vegas Open, compared to just 2 from CanCon, uh, which is obviously a significant percentage change. Um, I think the, the 2 is, you, you know, 2%, no, less than, less than 2%, uh, whereas... The 37 Chaos players is about 8% for the LVO, so compare less than 2% to 8%. Uh, um, pretty pretty significant increase. So you're definitely more likely to see Chaos Suit players at the Las Vegas Open. Also, Orc players as well. There are 27 Orc players at the Las Vegas Open, uh, as opposed to 3 at CanCon. Um, so there were significantly more Orc players, and the, also the Orc players at the LVO were all really good players, too. I'm really bummed that none of them made the top 8. But there, there were a lot of good quality orc players. Um, sisters players, I, I mentioned that earlier. There were seven sisters of battle players at the Las Vegas Open compared to six at CanCon, um, w which is, you know, we have one more sisters of battle player, but compared to that 143 mark, so there were six out of 143 sisters players for CanCon, um, and there were seven sisters players compared out of 473 players at the Las Vegas Open. Obviously, there's a lot, they're a lot less likely to to be played at the LVO. Um, and if you wanted comparable percentages, we would have to have like 25 sisters players, at the Las Vegas open, which is a huge amount. That's as many orc. That's as many orc players as there are sister players, um, which would be really cool. Sisters are, are one of those rare armies that people are usually delighted to see on the tabletop just because they're so rare. They're so underrepresented. <clears throat> so that's cool that there's a high percentage of Sisters players in Australia. Uh, and then there were more Blood Angels players being played at the LVO. I, I don't know if that's that's a, a U.S. meta thing. Um, there definitely was a lot more hype around Blood Angels, especially in the West Coast where I'm from, um, with obviously Mark Wright, who made the top eight. We'll talk about his list later. Uh, Mark Wright, Brandon Grant ran Blood Angels. I know Mike Brandt pulled, came over from Nova and ran Blood Angels. Um and there was just a smattering of Blood Angels played by U.S. players, kind of just randomly spread throughout. I don't know. I don't know if it's that that vampire thing, you know, because all of them are secret Twilight readers, or, or maybe it's the whole rage and and 
Fire and Fury, you know, U.S. correlation thing. I don't know. I don't know why there's more Blood Angels players. Um, but there were more Blood Angels players at the LVO compared to CanCon by a significant margin. Uh, there were 24 Blood Angels players at the LVO compared to just three Blood Angels players at CanCon. So that pretty much double the the percentage and and project the double the percent the percentage of representation. So it, there was also more. More variety at the Las Vegas Open. Uh, there were Death Watch and Harlequins, Gene Steeler. There were a lot more Gene Steeler Colt players, um, a lot more Tau players. Just, just in general, you got more variety at the Las Vegas Open. But that's to be expected. It's, it's a much larger event. So I'd imagine if you were to expand CanCon and pull every single Australian 40k player f- from Australia and drag them over to CanCon against their will, you would see similar numbers to the Las Vegas Open. So. That's pretty much it. And the reason why I like going over these faction breakdowns is not only for you guys to have meta-analysis and know what you need want to prepare for, uh, but also I feel like it represents the market as a whole, right? So you see, Eldar, I, I'd like to really look at the numbers um, for GW and see what sells the most. I would bet a kidney that Space Marines are the highest sellers by a mile. Like It's pretty obvious at this point. Um, but I'd like to see where Eldar, Chaos Space Marines, Guard, and Tyranids lie. Uh, we we do tend to see models sell out when they're really powerful. Uh, for perfect example, Hive Guard and Dark Reapers sell out on GW's website all the time because they're web store exclusive items. So they sell out constantly, nonstop. Uh, so I, I, I imagine that Guard and Tyranids and and those Eldar, especially the Aspect Warriors, I imagine those are all selling a lot right now, which which compared to the faction breakdowns at the LVO and CanCon, I imagine they mirror each other, but I'm not 100% sure. So that that's why I, look like, I like looking at these faction breakdowns. It also helps me a little bit too. I do run the Frontline Gaming secondhand shop, and it's nice to see what factions are trending and what factions aren't trending. Um, so right now, Grey Knights tend to be, are, are kind of trending down right now. So I might not... Might, might buy a grain army for a little bit less than I normally would have uh, compared to when they first, when the codex came out, when they were hot, grain knights were selling like crazy because they were a really powerful codex for a little while. Um, so that's pretty much it. It's always good to keep an eye on those trends. Uh, Adepticon will be the next big trend shift following the GW FAQ. And then from there, we'll have a huge hiatus until, yeah, well, the London GT will be in that time frame as well. And then we'll have a hiatus to the summer the summer big summer tournaments atc bao and then nova which is a tail end of summer so that'll be the next big 40k faction breakdown season um, when you'll start to see the meta shift again so it'll be very very interesting to see where everything goes uh especially as they release more codexes as as they nerf eldar uh, which they will do i'm predicting it they they will do it's not even a prediction it's it's i think it's almost a guarantee at this point so, looking at some interesting lists, uh, these lists are all on Best Coast Pairings. By the way, if you guys don't know about the BCP Player app, and you don't know how it works, it's very simple. You download the BCP Best Coast Pairings or BCP Player app on your Android or Apple device. You log in, you create an account, and you can look at lists submitted from users at tournaments within, I think, three business days up to three up to three or five business days so if a tournament happened that you guys are listening to this episode on the fifth so if a tournament happened on the fifth then you would be able to look at the list in that until the eighth or until that friday right so you'll be able to look at the list and after that you if you're not an un, if you're an unsubscribed 
member, you won't be able to look at lists anymore. Uh, so they do make it easy for players to follow along with tournaments as they're going on. So with Twitch coverage and with if you're on Facebook, if you're in some of the 40k groups uh, with coverage of the events. Uh, but to look at their archive of past events and lists of past events, you do need to have a BCP subscription. Uh, and it's not much. It's only $5 a month. It's very, very, very light. Uh, it's just think of it as supporting your local Twitch streamer or your your YouTuber that you like. You know, it's it's a, something that helps keep the lights on. And the BCP app, I feel, is our best our best direction to go to making this game a legitimate tournament-covered phenomenon, spectator sport kind of deal. So the BCP app, that's the way to go. Uh, just send them some love and support. Um, I do, definitely. So just go ahead and do that. And that's where you get these lists, too. So I'm not going to go over the lists front to back. Not only does that take forever, because I'm listing every little detail, but also I want you guys, if you guys want to look at these lists with more detail and look at exactly what's going on and what battalions they picked and how many command points they have, you should you should, uh, you should subscribe to the BCP app so you can look at all the lists. And you also you can look at more lists. Um, so I was going through the BCP app, and I picked out some of my favorite lists, some unique lists uh, with good players who were piloting them that made that went five and one or uh, ha- were in contention for the top eight. And I also picked a couple lists that were in the top eight that I wanted to highlight as well. These are just interesting lists to me. I had someone complain to me, a couple people complained to me uh, about the lists I pick for interesting lists. Um, for example, uh, for the CanCon lists, I picked two Tyranid lists two tiered lists and imperium and three imperium lists um and that's not bias <clears throat> i know i know you might think it's bias but i do look through all of the lists and kind of look at the ones that interest me and the ones that kind of run off meta different stuff um and if you want to see like an orc list or a chaos list or a dark eldar list or some sort of off meta faction list uh, just do well i do well at a tournament i, I challenge you to go to adeptagon um go to ATC, whatever large events coming up in the future, and do really well with a list, right? So if you're if you're if you love Dark Eldar and you're consistently like, why Pablo never talks about Dark Eldar? Well, no, it's not that I don't like Dark Eldar or don't like Tau. It's just I only like talking about the stuff that that's doing well and that's competing. Um, because I a I have to limit the amount of time, at, you know, because time is a resource, so I don't want to spend hours and hours and hours talking about every conceivable list for every conceivable faction. It's just not going to happen. And B, uh, people want to know what lists are doing well and what lists are performing well, um, well, not only for themselves, so they can either A, net list, or B, uh, you know, build their lists along those lines, but also so they can see what other people are running so they know what the big dogs are to beat. Um, because I can guarantee you, if you want to make a meta-busting, unique list that wins your own way with a really... Uh, an, a faction that isn't used very often, you do want to, you are going to want to know how to beat the top lists because those lists are the ones you're going to have to beat and compete with on a regular. So that's how you make a meta breaking list. So that's why I talk about them. So sorry if you if if you feel like there's a little bias, there isn't. These are just lists that I picked that that are kind of unique and different it, for me. This is an opinion thing. Moving on to first, Mark Wright. Um, I think he's probably the most obvious um, in terms of interesting lists. He had uh, Blood Angels, Primaris, Intercessors, Heavy List, uh, with Sanguinary Guard, Death Company, a solid character support, and a great playtest group. Uh, So this is the guy who made the top eight with a pure Blood Angels list at the Las Vegas Open, which is astounding. That's 
generally when you go online and you see a lot of complaints, you're like, oh, another Imperium soup list. Oh, another Chaos soup list. Oh, more Eldar. Yawn, yawn, yawn. Uh, right next to those complaints are also, that Grey Knight list isn't a real Grey Knight list. It's 999 points of guard and 1,001 points of Grey Knights. And that's not a real list. That's, that's boring. That's not what I want to see. That's not fun. That's not interesting. I get that a lot. All the time. You, you see that on comment sections everywhere. And I kind of agree to an extent um, in that they are very boring. So when I see a list like Mark's list do really well, which is a very clear underlog, underdog list. The Blood Angels faction, which which is a good faction now, but has been in, in you know four years removed from doing any amount of decent at an event, period. Right, so let, let's just be honest here. You know, I'm sure some of you have done really well with Ball Predators and Sixth Edition, and you, I don't know what I'm talking about. Well, facts don't lie. Blood Angels have sucked in the last four years. It's let's just face it. It's true in general. Um, so Blood Angels already that's a <clears throat> that's a, already an interesting eye raiser. On top of that, he was running Primaris Intercessors, which are the tactical marine variants of Primaris Marines, um, which are widely regarded as the worst Primaris Marines outside of the HQ choices. Um, so, you, you know, I, I would say you can make competitive arguments for any of the Primaris Marines, except for those. Uh, maybe not anymore because of how well Mark did with them, um, but just looking at how, just looking at the top 50 players at the Las Vegas Open, there are very, very few Primaris Intercessors, so I think that's still a very arg hard argument to make right now anyways. Um, so Mark, he ran a pure Blood Angels list, I wanted to give him one final shout out. It was a very interesting list. Um, he pl I can't decide whether the intercessors are just meta busting and that they're very tough to deal with in their obsec, uh, or Mark just played the crap out of that list. The logical part of me says both, um, so that's the one I'm gonna go with. But I think there there might be something about something about primaris intercessors and the ability to uh, get extra attacks when they charge, which is that they get for being blood angels. I don't know. It's very, very interesting. It's a good list, and it's definitely worth a look at, especially if you're a Blood Angels player and you want to know what, what characters to take for your Blood Angels list. So, obviously, if you don't want to one Primaris Intercessors, that's okay, but Mark's character suite that he picked perfectly accented his list and its ability to do what, what he wanted it to do. So, and I think Blood Angels have the best character or some of the best character choices to make right you have you obviously have the banners uh you have lamardes you have <clears throat> you have the mephiston is really good uh, and then you have the captains you can either make them death company captains make them crazy beat sticks with thunder hammers and jump packs uh they have good hq they have good librarian psychic choices for their librarians um just in general the sanguinor boost it's just they have a plethora of HQ choices to pick from. You could go on forever talking about the different combinations that you use to pick them. Um, so when you're building your Blood Angels list, it's very important that you pick the right characters to do the job for your list. Uh, Alex Fennel, another top eight player. We talked him to death you got, uh, previously, so you guys don't need to hear more about him. But the reason why I wanted to talk about his list is he has a very, very interesting list. It, it does say Space Wolves primary, um, though I did not count it as a Space Wolves list because it is technically an Imperium keyword list or Imperial Soup list. Um, he just put Space Wolves primary because I, he probably didn't understand how the ITC factions were worded. Um, and it is primarily points-wise, it is primarily Thunder Space Wolves um, because he has six characters on Thunder Wolves. So that's 
that's already a lot of your points right there. That's crazy. The amount of muscle and fur that goes into destroying his opponents is crazy. Uh, he also brought a splash of guard infantries and mortar teams. Uh, three of the best Blood Angel characters points can buy in Mephiston and two jump pack captains. Um, the jump pack captains are basically Thunderhammer, Storm Shield jump pack captains. They're dirt cheap. Uh, they're the new Captain Smashfucker, if you don't know what that is. Last edition, there was a captain on a bike with a Storm Shield and a Power Fist or a Thunderhammer. And he was just basically a really hard-to-kill character who would attach to units, zoom around, and just destroy things. And 1v1 Magnus and Baneblades and Warhound Titans and everything. So they are the equivalent of that character now. Uh, they are less durable, but the fact that they are more protected... From, because of the character, the shooting rule in 8th edition. Um, they can also deep strike perfectly. They can jump behind buildings. It, they're, they're, just, they're phenomenal units. They're cheap, too. They're dirt cheap. So, uh, Alex Fennel, I really wanted to give his list a shout-out. Uh, it had a little bit of everything. He even had some assassins in there. He had a trio of assassins, everything but the Vindicare assassin. Um, so he had Space Wolves, Guard, Blood Angels, assassins. A, a very Just a very interesting list. Very weird list. And... Uh, it definitely takes a, a really good player to run, I think, even though it, it seems kind of simple at first in the, with all the Thunderwolf characters, but I imagine there's a lot of intricacies and weird things that start happening when, when you start having all those characters at once, um, especially for positioning purposes. Another topic player I wanted to give a shout-out to was Mr. Jeff Poole. Uh, Jeff Poole was one of five Eldar players who were in the top eight. Uh, the reason why I want to mention him is is because he was running a different Eldar list than the rest of them, right? So even Sean Naden, who, who, whose Eldar list was very unique and very different, uh, Sean didn't run Dark Reapers uh, and ran Swooping Hawks, uh, I feel like Jeff's list was was just a little bit, took a little bit extra in terms of the uniqueness. Uh, Jeff Poole was running the Alitok, you know, uh, Craft World, so obviously the best Craft World rules. Uh, he was running Storm Guardians, as troop choices, so he did have some rangers, but storm he was running storm guardians, which I think is really cool. I like the idea of close combat guardians. Um, I like also like that that just what that troop does, and that it's obsec, it it covers buildings, and then because they're storm guardians, they're just a little bit better at killing things like nurglings and pink horrors and guardsmen. Um, so they're slightly better at it, and lets them fight for objectives a little better. And they're also obsec too, so they're pretty cool. I like Storm Guardians on paper. Um, and then he also had three Crimson Hunters. And that's it. So he, he, he had the Dark Reapers and the Wave Serpents and stuff, uh, but the three Crimson Hunters is, is really interesting because normally you'd see Hemlock Wraith Fighters. Um, that's the go-to flyer. Uh, he went with Crimson Hunters. I'm not going to pretend like I know exactly what they do. I'm not an Eldar player. Um, but I just wanted to go over Jeff Poole's list and, and highlight it and that it was a kind of a unique, different Eldar list and that it didn't have any Inari. didn't wasn't a soupy-type list. It was a very pure Eldar list. And the Three Crimson Hunters isn't something you see every day. So, Jeff Poole, congratulations. I wanted to give you a quick shout-out. Mitch Pelham is my next guy I want to give a shout-out to with the 15 Artemia Pattern Hellhounds. <clears throat> uh, the reason why I want to give this list a shout out is be not because it spammed one pretty pretty obvious on paper powerful unit, uh, because but because it's it's so rare. No one obviously no one's running this list other than Mitch, um, and also he has an insanely good record with it. Uh, it's crazy. It, you know I think he's lost like two games in tournaments with this list or something some ridiculously low number. 
right? So so Mitch Pelham is probably like twenty six and three in his ITC season for this last season, right? So out of all the events he's been in, uh, he was only lost three games, and then I also found out that he took a, a little bit of a break between the summer and towards the the winter time. Um, so he probably could have had an even better record and been even higher up on the ITC points. Um, <clears throat> but he wasn't, so he took a little bit of a, a hiatus there. Um, so Mitch, congratulations. That list is really interesting. It's a good meta-busting list. Um, he was just explaining to me all the different ways he just beat up on Eldar players with it. Uh, so, very cool. Uh, Don Hoosen, another tank spam list. He was running Plague Burst, Plague Burst Crawler spam. He was running 10 of them. Uh, Don, I know Don's mission was to prove to GW that the Plague Burst Crawler was was really strong and needed a nerf and he might have proved that I, I could see it maybe going up by 10 points going from 140 to 150 maybe um i don't see it really going up too many points it's, i think this is a really solid unit that and don is also a really good player too uh and he, he's known for running really weird offbeat lists and doing extremely well with them at tournaments uh, last year he brought a macedon and wolfen inside the macedon and that was pretty much his list so he, he just moved it up the board. And this is in the world of battle companies and Death Stars and Chaos Soup and Renegades. Um, so things Wolfen, things Wolfen could kill, but either they couldn't kill them very effectively um, in the Death Stars, or there were just too many bodies that the Wolfen couldn't kill them all. Uh, and Don went 5-1 and one with that list. So Don's a very good player. Um, if you're interested in running Plague Burst Crawlers, he's definitely someone you should talk to online. 10 Plague Burst Crawlers might be a big much. Um, I think it was just trying, trying to prove a point there for sure. Um, but that's someone I wanted to highlight. <clears throat> someone else I wanted to highlight, Troy Esposito, uh, with a true Space Wolves list. So you had Alex Fennel, the faux Space Wolves player, and Troy Esposito, who went 5-1 with pure Space Wolves. He had Wolfen, two Fenrisian Wolf units, a Fire Raptor, Thunder, two Thunderwolf Cavalry units, a Whirlwind Scorpius, and random for random space wolf characters thrown in there like Arjack, Rockfist and stuff. It was just it was a very weird space wolf list. It was is very simple. Um it was definitely built around a space wolf theme. It wasn't just Primaris Space Wolves Marines, um, and that it could be literally any Space Marine army, but he happened to pick Space Wolves. It was actually he actually picked a lot of unique Space Wolf units. Uh, and he went 5-1, and one, but his only loss was to Mitch Pelham, uh, who I just mentioned with his 15 Artemia Pattern Hellhounds. And I imagine Troy's list doesn't do too well against those. Uh, the Fire Raptor doesn't do a whole lot. It can kill Hellhounds, but the Fire Raptor isn't going to start demolishing them and taking them, you know, two or three out at a time, which if you're running 15 Hellhounds is something you need to do. Uh, and Troy's list, other than that, gets very much in your face. So that I can definitely see how that was a rough, rough matchup for him. Um, and I'm not surprised that Mitch did beat Troy. Um, but Troy is essentially one one win away from making the top eight with pure Space Wolves. Uh, and if we'd had, he'd have done that, then we'd have had uh, pure Blood Angels and a pure Space Wolves player in the top eight, which would have been crazy, um, but that didn't happen. So Troy, good job going, getting almost going the distance with, with pure Space Wolves. James Carmona, wanted to talk about his Chaos list. This is already a list I talk about on the regular if you listen to my podcast, so I'm not going to go too much into detail with it. Uh, but essentially, it's a chaos list that covers the entire board as best as it can. It really does a good job of zoning you off of all the important key parts on the board that he wants you to. And then he drops in two bombs, two chaos bombs, quote-unquote, uh, a bomb of 40 cultists and a bomb of 30 pink horrors. 
the pink horrors shoot things and and put out a ton of damage in shooting the chaos cultists do both shooting and close combat tons of damage <clears throat> and he essentially just overpowers you with bodies and while you're dealing with all this he has three units of obliterators that drop down and take out all your cool stuff that you really want protected uh, and that's pretty much it his only other loss was to aaron towler who, who was another phenomenal player who uh, who also has a, a who had kind of an interesting list, um, though I didn't mention it on here. But Aaron Towler, Aaron Towler, uh, great player. He's on Team Happy. He usually does really well. And that was James's loss. And according to both players, uh, when I talked to them, James was definitely on the unlucky end of that game. Um, so James could have very well been six zero. And I think he, I think his list had a good shot at beating some of the Eldar players in the top eight. Uh, because just because of how different it is, I don't think those other players have seen a list like James's. Um, so that's something if if you're looking for a chaos list that's different but very very powerful and very very well tested and well played, uh, I would check out James Carmona's chaos list. Another good chaos list, a Kenny Boucher. Um, now I know Kenny uh, gets a lot of flack um, for for uh, his past and also as Spiky as a member of Spiky Bits, um, who are not known as the, they are not the Sean Nadens and Nick Nottabodies of the world, essentially. I'm not calling them bad players. Uh, the, the guys at the Long War, they're great. Uh, they do a lot of good things for the community. Um, but they are not known as these hyper-competitive, really good top-tier players, right? So Kenny Boucher, he's a member of the Long War. Um, and actually, Juice does really well, too, right? They're actually really good players. Juice and Kenny, are, like, Juice did really well at Nova, um... You know, and they're both gentlemen too. They're both very cool. Um, <clears throat> but I wanted to give Kenny a shout out, um, not only because I think he's a great player, and every time I see him come to a tournament, he always brings his A game. Uh, but he also brings a really interesting, beautifully painted chaos list, and he brings a different chaos list every single tournament. Um, so he doesn't run the same list every single time. It's usually some other list that that's been. I don't know where he pulled it from, just some other chaos list that's beautifully painted with a bunch of unique models and great conversions, and he does really well with this chaos list. Um, and this this chaos list that he brought is no exception. He had <clears throat> he had the normal chaos soup bomb stuff with the cultists and the obliterators and and all the good stuff that you would expect from chaos soup lists. Um, but he also had four decimator soul burner petard decimators. Um, the, those were really popular units back in the summer before they got FAQ'd. Uh, they are essentially dreadnoughts, uh, vehicles with assault, with weapons that are assault 2d3. And, and I believe they have two of these weapons. So they're 2d3, assault 2d3, and for every successful hit roll you make, you do a mortal wound. And they've got two of them. So they're shooting 4d3 mortal wounds at things. He's got four of them, so obviously he's putting out an insane amount of shots, uh, and these things aren't slouches in close combat. They're 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 dreadnoughts. They're they're fairly durable, not crazy, nothing to go home about. But when you've got a chaos list that puts forty cultist bodies in your face, nurglings contesting objectives, obliterators, and a bunch of other bodies everywhere else on top of the decimators, uh, you're you're in for a rough time. And there's actually a really good video of Kenny playing mini wargaming Quirk online um and i would say that quirk played his best tactically in that in that game but he just he didn't go first and if you go on our facebook frontline if you go on our facebook live stream on frontline gaming and uh, you can actually watch kenny's entire turn one um and you can really see how kenny layers the cultists uh with the obliterators with the decimators and just kind of systematically takes out quirk's 
army. Um, despite Quirk having some really cool uh, deployments with the Star Weavers and the crew jumping into the building so that they couldn't be shot at, um, it was just it, it was just a uh, Unfortunately, Quirk had a Harlequin's army, um, which does not like going second against an army like Kenny's. Um, so if you really want a clinic on how to alpha strike your army with a good Chaos Soup list, I would check that out. Kenny pretty much did it flawlessly, um, because I imagine he's well-practiced with that with that list. Uh, so just go ahead and check that out. I wanted to give Kenny a shout-out. I also wanted to give Mike Snyder and John Camacho a shout-out. Uh, they were both Gene Stealer cult players, and each of them have very interesting gene stealer cult lists uh these these are two guys who are phenomenal players uh jonathan camacho made the top eight two years ago at the las vegas open with necrons in the middle of warp spider season and death stars and battle companies uh which which is really weird it's really unique and crazy uh and ever since then he's been doing really well he's been dominating with gene stealer cult and he he's just he's been doing well. And then Michael Snyder, who's on my team, Relentless D, uh, another phenomenal player. Uh, I think he's missed out on the top eight at the LVO just barely. I think twice now. Um, a great player, and both of them really see the strengths and what Gene Stiller Colt provide, and that they provide good Tyranid units. They provide they they have access to good Tyranid units, good guard units, and Gene Stiller Colt. So they're still Gene Stiller Colt primary. Um, I think. They're they're not showing how good the Gene Stealer Cult faction is because I think both of them would agree that the faction is in a bad spot, um, but they're really proving that that you can take a turd or something underwhelming and do really well with it uh, in the right hands with good list craftsmanship. Um, so go ahead and check out those lists if you want to know how to run Gene Stealer Cult. Although a fair warning, you will have to have allies. Uh, pure Gene Stealer Cult lists don't do extremely well. Um, so you will have to swallow your pride a little bit and run allies, either Tyranid or Guard. And next, Josh Death, um, who not only did a very honorable thing in stepping down in the top eight to let Brad Chester play, um, but also Josh Death's list was was weird. It was a very strange list. I would actually, actually go as far as to say that it's a very cerebral list in that uh, it was a Chaos Soup list, right, with 553 reinforcement points. And a 400 plus point Aquila Strong Point. So the Aquila Strong Point is that big building uh, with the giant uh, macro cannon, I think is what it's called. It's basically a big gun. Um, it doesn't hit too often. I think it still hits on fives. Uh, and if there's people, if there's units inside, it can actually shoot at anything it wants instead of the closest unit. Uh, so essentially what he does is he he has bodies, lots of chaos bodies, Nurglings, Brimstone Horrors, Goltis, the usual, just a smattering of bodies, uh, with character support, Typhus, uh, I think he has the Endless Poxwalker deal going on there with Typhus as well, uh, so he has bodies, characters, and then he uses these 553 enforcement points to teleport things that he needs to across the table and kind of act like a Swiss Army knife or a catch-all to uh, deal with the things that, that hurt him or trouble him. So uh, it's, a, it's a very cerebral list, a very interesting list. Uh, I think Josh Death played it extremely well. Um, if I could give one critique to not Josh Death, but those style of lists, uh, they are very slow. So in this in this day of age where slow playing is going to become a focal point for TOs and for rulings, um, I would maybe stay away with a list like this. Uh, maybe you take out some of the bodies, or I, I don't know how you would fix it, um, but it's a very hard list to play. It's very slow, um, but if you master it, I'd imagine that list can be any list in the meta. 
Uh, and then finally, Will Abilese is my last person I wanted to give a shout out to. Uh, Will, who last year made the top eight with with Gundam Riptides, Gundam Riptides, um, and was running a kind of kind of an interesting Riptide wing meta busting Tau list that he was gunning for flyers, which there was a lot of. Um, so he was taking out Magnuses and Fate Weavers left and right. Um, which was was what his his goal was and why he did so well. Um, but Will was running Oathway Eldar this time, uh, and he was also running a very unique Eldar style. Um, so he was running Striking Scorpions. It, it was a, a a brigade detachment. So he, he filled out an Oathway Eldar brigade detachment. Uh, he had Striking Scorpions, Swooping Hawks, four troop slots invested in Dire Avengers, three Shadow Weaver heavy support weapon batteries a unit of Wraith Blades, and an Avatar of Kane. So th- that's already a weird list. Like, no Dark Reapers, uh, no Wave Serpents, no Incar, no Inari at all to speak of. Uh, none of the, the good stuff that the other Eldar players brought and made a name with, right? So you would think, like, oh, okay, um, Pablo, why are you talking about him? Well, uh, he went 4-1-1, one, and one, so not not that big of a deal, and but his only draw came to Ben Moley, who was running a, who's who a phenomenal player. Um, it was also running a really weird orc list. Um, so when your only draw is Ben Moley, and then your only loss is to Josh Death, who technically still made the top eight, uh, that's that's a great performance. So even though you went 4-1-1, one, and one, uh, your draw was against one of the best players in the history of 40k, running a really weird orc list, so it's not something that you're prepared for. And you drew him, uh, and then your loss came to someone who made the top eight. If Will had won, if Will had beaten Josh Death, then he would be in the top eight right now because he would be five zero and one, uh, and would have made the top eight. So it, it, it's a shame that Will lost to Will. Will played round one. Will played Josh round one and lost round one. So he was never in contention for the top eight for the, throughout the entire event. Um, but the fact that he stayed. And did really well with such a really weird list. Um, I just wanted to highlight it, and it, it's kind of interesting to see where the potential could have been, right? Like how how would he have fared against the top Eldar list that you saw, or uh, some of the other top lists? So it's just it's just a cool list. He did really well with it. He went four one and one, um, and I think it goes to show that there are other Eldar lists other than spamming Dark Reapers and Inari abusers. And that's pretty much it. Those are all the interesting lists. If you guys want to look at more lists, I would go to the Best Coast Pairings Player app. Check that out once again. There are a ton of interesting things in there. Um, I only covered the ones I thought were the most intriguing. Um, also, I didn't cover anything that went 4 and 2 or less. Uh, and there were a lot of really good players, names that you would definitely recognize if you listen to my podcast, uh, that also ran really cool lists too. Um, so I think... I think the subscription just for the Las Vegas Open list coverage alone is worth it. Like I know, I know I'm myself. I'm looking into some of the Imperium lists and the Blood, specifically people who are using Blood Angels because I'm I'm trying to build my list and I'm trying to figure out what I run a one because I'm kind of undecided between like five factions, and Blood Angels are one of them, and they're the faction that that intrigues me the most. So I, I'm kind of looking at what top players are running and how many death companies should I run? How many axes should I give them? What characters should I pick? Uh, how well did those players do? Who did they beat? Who did they lose to? Et cetera, et cetera. And uh, I'm hopefully going to come up with a really good Imperium list for Adepticon. Uh, but we will see. Anyways, guys, thanks very much for listening. You guys are the best listeners in the world. 
per the usual, if you want to email me, if you have any questions, if you want to know about any of the stuff I've talked about, you want me to expand further, uh, or if you're in going to a tournament and you're curious and you want to know how well your list will do, or if you have any questions, email me, frontlinegamingpdpab at gmail.com. I get emails all the time. I love chatting with you guys. Uh, I, th I think it's a good break to my day when I'm working, and there's... I always get a lot of really cool stories. I always get a lot of uh, people, you know, they're from Poland or or, or somewhere or somewhere around the world that I've never been, or I've never thought of, uh, really, when I think of 40k players. And they always say, like, they're, you know, they play, they, they love playing, and th my podcast is the only competitive podcast that, that they can get. It's the closest to competitive 40k that they can get. Um, so for those of you who, who are stragglers or isolated who are listening to my podcast and listen to it for tournament news and tournament coverage and tactics, um, I appreciate you guys. Uh, you guys are the best listeners, and I usually get emails from those guys too. Um, so don't be shy. I love chatting with you guys. If you guys just want someone to talk 40K with uh, because you don't have a lot of people in your area to talk 40K, competitive 40K with, I'm more than happy to get, help you give you your fix as well, especially if that gets you excited to enough to maybe run a tournament or come to the Las Vegas Open. Anyways, guys, have a good one.